to get back to the uh, the warning that I've received, you may take it with how many, however many grains of salt you wish, that the brown acid that is circulating around us is not specifically too good. Uh, it's suggested that you do stay away from that. Of course, it's your own trip, so be my guest, but uh, please be advised that there is a warning on that one, okay? I pledge allegiance. To the band. It may perhaps discourage you and others of your kidney or infected with this vicious virus, but you'll be ordered to pay a fine of 75 pounds. I'll pay now if you go, boys. Just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder. These guys are 11. Welcome to Movies That Rock, a rock and roll journey through cinema. I'm your host, Josh Fitzgerald, and returning to the show tonight are two of my friends from the same page cast who were previously on the Monkey's Head episode. They're back today to talk about Woodstock, the 1970 documentary covering the Revolutionary Music Festival in Bethel, New York. I'm extremely thrilled to have back on the show today Megan Stemwade and Craig Smith. Hey, guys. How you doing tonight? Hi! Hey! Welcome That's back! That's a nice, <laughs> nice intro. Thank you. It's our well, pleasure to be here. It's so Yay. good to be back. It's been so long since I've heard your guys, you use guises, <laughs> since I've heard your, <laughs> your voices. It's really great to, to, to reconnect. Hey, yeah. it's great to be anywhere these days. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's true. That is very true. <laughs> so um, what's been going on with you guys? Um, any any projects or anything that, you are, that you'd like to plug or discuss? Craig's uh, got the projects. He's a project man. He is. Um, I, I don't know. Ma- Megan and I uh, have, have a trip planned that I, I think kind of folds into the topic of this episode. Maybe we'll go into later. Okay. Uh, because because I'm sure that we might come out of it with some sort of podcast content, I would hope. <laughs> I would yes. hope so. Mm-hmm. You know. I greatly look forward to that. I, I do know what this is, but I'll keep it a secret for our listeners. So, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I don't. I don't know that it's going to be a big reveal. I mean, they shouldn't get too excited. Right. Uh, but <laughs> but I know that for, if people follow us, you on Instagram, it, it it's been posted a few times. So, That's and if you don't true. follow Craig on Instagram, you and Megan, you should follow them both. But we'll we'll promote later. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so yeah, we're going to talk about Woodstock today, and I'm really excited for Woodstock. The festival just. A matter of weeks ago, just celebrated its 50th anniversary. Wow, crazy! Speaking, I guess, of projects, we could actually talk about this a little bit, Craig. Um, I know that you are a huge Woodstock aficionado, and um, there was a recent release of a very, like you said, immersive box set with every single um, performance that's available anyway that was released on CD, and um, that was a, a project that you did on your Instagram where you you kind of discussed all the performances as you were listening to them and that was pretty fun yeah you got to see me uh at my various stages of disgust and (laughs) elation um and got to see me at all times of the day as well which which had to be frightening at at certain (laughs) times of the day it was a very very intimate portrait of craig's life (laughs) <laughs> it was too, too intimate. But but before we go any further, I do just want to say uh, I am no aficionado when it comes to this stuff. I, I kneel before somebody like Scott Parker, who did a book on um, Woodstock, which is actually what got me into Woodstock um, called mm-hmm. Woodstock Documented. And you can find this on Amazon or on his site. But 
so so not an aficionado, but did mm-hmm. sit through the entire thirty eight discs twice and um hit the highlights a few times and watched the film a bunch and watched the film outtakes a bunch. So I I I, I tend Megan will tell you this. When I get into something I tend to do nothing uh, except things centered around that piece of media and this Woodstock <laughs> and Woodstock <laughs> has been that for probably the last two months. Wow. Are, any signs of Woodstock fatigue? You know what? Um, maybe only yeah. because uh, during uh, I, I had just done a three part Woodstock episode with my co-host Ian on the pods and sods network. And he just haphazardly during the conversation mentioned how several of the artists at Woodstock performed better at Monterey pop. And I knew Mm. nothing about Monterey pop. Uh, Do you Josh? I do. I actually love the Monterey pop movie. I've seen it more than I've seen Woodstock confession that maybe we're jumping the gun a little bit, but when I watched Woodstock in the theater for its re-release, it was the first time I actually saw the film properly. Okay. And um, Monterey pop I'd seen a number of times before and I owned the the Blu-ray of that. And I, I love it. It's, it's, not that far removed from Woodstock. I think some of the performances are a little bit more polished. Yeah. But um, <laughs> but um, I, I like the lineup of performers a little bit better, too. Yeah. But there's, you know, it's, it's a balance. It's, it depends on what kind of mood I'm in. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's interesting for me because I went backwards. And mm-hmm. whereas you had the proper experience, like you got to see uh, some artists age 10 years in two. Yeah. Whereas for me, it was like I'm I'm looking at elementary school portraits of these <laughs> artists like it's it's absolutely crazy. Mm-hmm. But I've been on a Monterey pop. Um, I, I shouldn't say kick. It's only been a, a couple days, but I, I'm getting a lot of interest in it. So yeah. I'm glad you brought that you... up because I was going to mention that later. I feel like it'd be remiss not to point out that there's been a very special guest appearance of Stanley. In the background, Stanley. Yeah, people. Oh, yeah. I was wondering. I was wondering if you could hear that. He's uh, <laughs> he's two floors down. And, uh, Is this his podcast debut? Uh, oh, he's oh. Um, he's made a couple appearances. <laughs> OK. Yeah. Um, yeah. He is. He is bumped the mic, sniffed the mic. Um, this he's, must uh, be a topic he, he's passionate about. Yeah. He loves He's... music festivals. He loves breakfast in bed. I'm jumping ahead here. <laughs> no, he should be uh he he's lament my sister is going on vacation for a week, so he's lamenting at the window. Oh. Uh, her her absence Poor guy. and uh, and his um utter trepidation at being stuck with me for the next week. So <laughs> <No>. <laughs> So yeah, so once he gets over that, we'll be we'll be good. Craig and Megan, when was the first time you saw the the film itself of Woodstock? For me, the first time was um, with Craig, maybe mm. 2016, so relatively recently. Uh, at that point, I knew that it was something that Craig would put on in the background a lot of weekends running. Mm-hmm. So he, at that point, was already very familiar. And um, I, it's strange that I hadn't seen it up to that point because I, it seems like something I would have rented as a 13-year-old from... The Bookworm, which was the video store in my neighborhood. Um, and because they, they sent, certainly had it, and I looked at the box many times, but I don't know if it felt too older teenager for me, but somehow I just I just totally missed it for years and years. But uh, but once you watch it, I don't think you go back to ever uh, not having an opinion about it. It's pretty mind-altering, no pun intended, seeing it for the first time. Even just its length alone. For sure. 
And I think if it's okay to say this, just to sort of start, but sure. I think I, I started looking for a narrative um, of some kind other than just, you know, performances. And I know mm-hmm. I probably asked Craig a million questions like, when is this now? Is this Sunday morning? Is this whatever? And after a while, I think probably like you have to do after you've heard 15 blues acts, you just sort of have to like <laughs> let your mind go, just go with what's <laughs> happening up there. Also with the, the editing and I mean, it's masterful and it's creative, but you have to be ready for a different kind of experience, which I yeah. mean, in that way, it's brilliant because it captures what was going on, which was everything at once, you know. Right. I wonder if in some ways it almost like mimics the, the hazy acid trip that was the weekend. I'm sure nobody <laughs> there knew what day it was anyway. <laughs> so yeah, I guess exactly. we as an audience maybe would be expected to feel the same. Yeah, perhaps. Yeah, but you're right. It is a little it's murky. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. I think there's definitely a sort of chronology. Um, but I I mean, I'm kind of a documentary geek. And I think I was looking for that kind of like, we're going to get a central character and we're going to follow that central character through, you know, that kind of thing. Cinema verite kind of situation. And, and it's very different, very different from that. I mean, concert documentaries are they're kind of their own animals i'm sure you've talked about many times on movies that rock pod um but uh i actually haven't covered too many concert films oh okay okay um but you know woodstock is just it's a beast all on its own but anyway i should throw this to my co-host here craig because i'm I'm talking over you you uh when did you first see it i saw it either in middle school or high school once uh because my uncle had the cassette and lent it to me and he was one of those like my family was was very uh, like no cursing in the house, uh, couldn't see any movies with nudity, things like that. And so when I would go over to my forget what's my yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I would go over to my uncle's house and it would be like the wild, wild west over there. Like my aunt and uncle would be trashed and my, my uncle would be going around. Give me. <laughs> and like all of those th- and like he's the one essentially that introduced me to Woodstock but only in as much as like you know I, I would listen to the cassette and be like this is this is weird like and then he he tried to like hit me to the the nudity so I tried to like <laughs> I, I actually didn't try I succeeded I rented it from a, a video store uh, at some point in middle school probably and uh, was just tremendously overwhelmed by it because it's it's a lot to take in. There mm-hmm. were none of those bands that I enjoyed as a middle schooler. <laughs> you know, Debbie Gibson didn't play Woodstock. <laughs> and uh, and so it, um, it was actually uh, I had mentioned Scott Parker. He when he was researching his book, he put on a forum a list of all available performances from Woodstock. And it was like, uh, these exist, uh, in the film, these exist on the album, these exist on an audience tape. And I was like, there are bootlegs of Woodstock. (laughs) Like people were walking around at Woodstock with tape recorders and there were, uh, so he had an outline and he did his best to, and this was one of the things that fascinated me about Woodstock, the whole mystery about it. Like there wasn't a set list or even a fully agreed upon list of acts in order until the 40th anniversary when the uh, 2009 Rhino box set came out. The producer, Andy Zachs, was the first to go through all of the tapes and fully document it. And from that, Scott 
try to take the pieces in the movie and the little snatches of dialogue about about the bad acid and you know getting down off the towers and tried to like piece together where all these things happened in the three days and I got really into that just like it's a mystery like the Beach Boys smile like it was never finished so what exactly is the end thing Mm -hmm. and there wasn't really one until they made one up and that was one of the interesting things about listening to the whole festival at least what exists on the 38 disc box in order and finally hearing everything Kind of as it happened. And just to I, I want to mention this before I forget. You had mentioned the the 38 disc box. It's now sold out. Uh, but it contains all of the music except for one and a half Shanana songs due to a tape switch. I'm sure we'll talk about them later. And um unfortunately, the thing that I'm I'm most bummed about, I'm not a huge Jimi Hendrix fan, but the Hendrix estate would not allow two of the songs from the Hendrix set on the the Woodstock box because they were sung by Larry Lee, his guitarist at the time, and also would not allow them to be mixed to sound like the rest of the set. So you get to the Hendrix set, it's hyper compressed, doesn't even sound like it was recorded at Woodstock. You've gotten the hang, you know, throughout 30 some discs, it's been, you know, this specific sound and then the Hendrix disc comes on and it, I didn't even bother listening to it. So, it's uh, it's a shame. It's a shame that the estate kind of were the the ones to to make this set not as complete as it could be. But aside from that, boxes is, is amazing. So I guess he published this. Maybe it was like maybe five years ago or something. And when I saw that, I rented the movie again and finally sat down and watched it through a couple nights and just became so interested in like this little microcosm of of what it was and just like. How did more people not die? I, I mean, when you hear the full box, like there is a lot of, you know, lost people, lost kids, uh, just like all kinds of crazy shit. And it's like, how did this go? And I mean, with with it being run as as, you know, slapdash as it was and just like, <laughs> you know, barely uh, even pulling it off to begin with. Yeah. And then just like, you know, the lack of enough water, the lack of enough food. It's like it's amazing that it was not a complete. It's amazing that it wasn't Altamont. And I think the film does a great job in kind of showing the adults reactions to this, which are, you know, for the most part, pretty positive, except for one really cranky couple that I'm sure we'll (laughs) we'll discuss. Um, But, yeah, it's it's just like one of those things that I got fully immersed in, just like what what must this have been like? I couldn't have done it for many reasons, my age being the first one, but also like I don't have the constitution for that kind of thing. But like. Um, one other thing I just want to say before we get into the movie stuff, like Scott, when, uh, when he was putting this kind of stuff together, you know, there was, there was a, uh, a, a thought that like all of the acoustic acts were on day one and country Joe had said for years that he was the second one to perform. He actually didn't perform until Saturday. Richie Havens talked about how he played for like, I don't know, two weeks, because uh, nobody, because Sweetwater couldn't get there, and he ended up playing for like forty minutes. Um, that's what drugs will do to your memory. Uh, and and just like he he had told me, Scott had told me that like people sent him pictures of like, look at where the sun is setting. Like this could not have happened at this time. And like for years, it was trying to put these. And he was doing this as a fan, you know, just trying mm-hmm. to put these pieces together of how 
how this festival happened and the order it happened in. So it's it's so crazy to actually have all of that on paper and there be you know there's an audio record that's as as close to complete as we'll ever get. Uh, so th- so I find all that kind of stuff fascinating. And so and the movie. As Megan said, completely nonlinear, mm-hmm. uh, except for you know essentially what is the beginning and the end, yeah. and everything in the middle just kind of it is kind of like acid trippy because it just goes from day to day and back and forth and night night and day and and it doesn't uh, help that you have the split screen for you know seventy five percent of the movie that just adds to the unwieldiness of the experience. So I'm sure that we have all watched the director's cut, which is the one that's available. Uh, yeah, that's now. the one that I watched. Yeah, so I recently, for the for the first time since you know, middle school, watched the pan and scan original cut, which <laughs> is available on Amazon, mm-hmm. but it's not available digitally, not on DVD, not on Blu-ray. And the the pan and scan is the most ridiculous thing because most of the time, ninety percent of the screen is taken up with the image they want to show you, but that ten percent sliver is still on the other side. <laughs> so so some, sometimes they'll go back and forth, but a lot of the time it's like, you know, when when it's three screens, you can see the little bits on the left and the right. Oh, that's they went awful. to yeah, they went to no lengths to try to clean that up for VHS. <laughs> the entire so it, point it, of split screen is to have it in widescreen. <laughs> yeah, and I remember there were I I'm fairly certain there was a widescreen VHS put out of it. I don't know if it was the original cut or the director's cut, but I remember that at the time and and being like, "Wow, cuz I was in a laser disc at the time." Mm-hmm. Megan probably into film more than me, but when I got a laser disc player, like I was all about widescreen and you know, all that stuff. So mm-hmm. yeah, it was, it was very cool that they put that out that way for me personally. And I don't know if this is considered a controversial opinion, but to me, the least fascinating part of Woodstock is the music. Everything that went down is what really fascinates me. And not that I'm not interested in the music, but to me, mm-hmm. it, to me, it takes kind of a backseat to the story of Woodstock. Yeah. I'm totally, I'm totally with you on that. I think mm-hmm. like Craig was mentioning just the, the sheer unexplainable fact that no one got hurt that there weren't mass issues with people getting along starting with the traffic jam on that in and of itself was an opportunity for all kinds of uh non-cooler heads to prevail well aside from abby hoffman aside from well yeah (laughs) there's always an exception well we we also shouldn't say i mean more deaths than there were there there was two deaths or one i can't Mm, quite remember somebody was yeah somebody was sleeping under a tractor and Ugh. got run over and killed. Ugh. And I think there might have been an overdose, but there was at least one death. Mm-hmm. But yes, to your point, amazing that there weren't a lot more. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, don't hire the Hells Angels, <laughs> you know. But I mean, there's so much that goes on around the festival. I think that uh, it was just the other day, Craig and I were watching a couple of sort of supplementary um, little documentaries and stuff. And we were talking about Woodstock and I said, I, I can't believe like these 20 year olds pulled this off. You know, Michael Lang yeah. being, what is he? 20, 22, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, the other rich dudes that he hooked up with, with the money, they were quite young. I barely know 20 year olds who I would trust with all this, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but that's not fair. Yeah. I don't even know that many anymore, but, but, uh, cause I'm an old girl, <laughs> but, um, it, it's, 
it's just amazing how many things came together and and you do have to just start to kind of believe in a in a hippie kind of mystique where some people who were there have said that this was the energy that we had that we carried and we brought it together and this is how we behave together it's it's pretty impressive and then just like uh, oh it's going to be a free concert now all right well (laughs) yeah okay well we'll lose all this money it's cool i mean just look at this crowd (laughs) yeah that's a shocking decision and a very 1969 decision i think (laughs) that that definitely saved a lot of uh strife you know it it really created an atmosphere of everyone's welcome um we want to accommodate people who paid and who maybe aren't able to get in yet we don't want to turn those people away so we're just going to be as egalitarian about this as possible right now and as one of the announcements says, take a big bath, you know, mm-hmm. um, and that's what they did. But it, yeah. it's amazing the community they were able to create over that weekend. Yeah. That's not hype. That's the truth. They're going to get hurt. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I've listened true. to this way too much. <laughs> well, let me let me tell you when it, watching this movie in a theater was a mm-hmm. lot. It was a very intense experience, especially like with all the split screen and the there's so much of it is in your face and with the music and it's so long. Yeah. I would go just to see the two hippies talking about how they ball. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, I hope yeah. those kids are okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Ian and I were talking on on our podcast about how they, you know, they might not have gotten all the musical performances right, but boy did they get the festival crowd right oh, because they did. The, between the townspeople and the I wanted to say and the hippies or the freaks as Arlo would say. Uh, <laughs> you know, between all of them like they got every uh sort of interstitial uh non-music. There's probably a, a word for that that Megan knows like some fancy film word. Uh, <laughs> I I think but, what you're saying is fine. <laughs> okay. Uh that uh they got those 100% right. Right. They're so compelling. All the little character sketches in between the sets are so fascinating. These people that are just like laying down on the ground with their eyes closed while their kids are like running around, like <laughs> getting into everything, flower- yeah, like putting flowers in people's hair yeah. and just like, <laughs> would you be able to take your eyes off a child for a second? There were some kids running on the stage during performances. Yeah, you know that was um that was a, a side stage. That was a second stage. Yeah, we had talked about that uh, it, on our podcast. I wasn't incredibly familiar with that. It's on the cover of Woodstock 2, the kids by the drum set. And that was a second stage that I believe was near the hog farm. And mm-hmm. there's actually footage of uh, maybe locals or something like playing acoustic guitars there. But Joan Baez went there as well and played like a, a little intimate set for people. Uh, I don't I don't know if it was before or after she played on the main stage. But yeah, another stage that isn't really talked about a lot. Now, wasn't it originally the stage was designed was meant to be like a rotating stage? True. It it is. It is like a a circular thing. And you see you see that at the beginning. Yeah. And even on the box, they're talking about how we need to rotate the stage to accommodate something. So it, it made it sound like it was it was used at least in part, but maybe not to the extent where they wanted to like fully set somebody up on the other side and then rotate it and have them ready to go. Mm -hmm. Uh, So maybe that's why bands ended up playing at six o'clock in the morning uh, (laughs) because it just, everything just kept getting spaced further and further out. That's a good lead into the beginning of the movie when long time gone is playing every, you're seeing everything in Maxie Asger's farm start to turn and and become a little bit more (laughs) industrialized, I guess, and, and being taken over by the freaks. 
you could tell that the atmosphere is a little bit off. Like things are not going the way they should be, and there's a, you could feel the stress as yeah. they're, they're building everything, and everything's really last minute and in, in, in haste. Yeah, I mean, because the one thing that they don't go into in the movie is you know how they had to move the site from Wallkill because they were getting like death threats and all sorts of things to Bethel. Mm-hmm. Um, which of course you get in the documentaries, but it's it's interesting they don't really go into that. Whereas like a gimme shelter, like the first portion of the film is about how they can't get it together. For for all that they couldn't get together, it's interesting that they don't really touch upon that. Yeah, and it's such a huge part of of the story, and it's a really important sure. part as to why it ended up being where it was and how it turned out. You know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Max Yasker was such a huge important figure and I, I don't really think that he gets enough, gets talked about enough. I completely yeah. agree. He, yeah. he's, he is the hero of this film. Yeah. He really is. He's like some kind of milk hoarding angel who comes down and, <laughs> and, <laughs> and supplies dairy and good vibes and land yeah. for everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's like Joe Cocker says during his set, something like that little guy that just came out, the farm guy seems a nice little bloke. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And he was. He he had no problem yeah. at all with any of it. He was like a staunch conservative guy, but yep. he, you know, he. I, I think he just liked having all the people use his land, and and I'm sure he got some kind of financial benefit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but sure. he got it. Yeah, he got a good. I think the way Lang describes it in his book is that they, and Lang is very discreet. He doesn't go into numbers, but he says that they they sat down together and and Max and and Michael said this is how much I think that how many crops you might lose if we use this much land and that kind of stuff. And Max is like, yeah, that's about right. Maybe a little more. And so I think that, I think that Max got a nice little payout, mm-hmm. you know, because they had to compensate for what he wouldn't be able to produce that year because his land would be a mess for a while. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I don't think it was anything that would set him up forever. Certainly it wasn't. I think that there was uh, so much good in him to welcome the, the whole thing, the whole shebang. And I mean, we see that in that moment when we, we meet him on film and he talks to the crowd. It's, it's one of my favorite moments. I yeah, think me too. It's yeah. really heartwarming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, It gives me chills every time still. Yeah. And yeah. I love how much they include a bunch of people of Max's generation of the, you know, the parents of the uh, festival goers, um, the townspeople, all those people who are, you know, one generation up and how they feel about it. We have that moment where there's like a Facebook comment section come to life, you know, with the one guy who's just like, do you want your 15 year old girl out there? And the other guy is saying like very sensible, rational, asking him questions, trying to, you know, talk about like, well, why do you feel that way? I don't want a 15 year old girl out there. He just keeps saying that over right, and over yeah. again. But most of them are really are, are truly, like you said, lovely people. And I think there yeah. was a comment made by one of them saying that, oh, yes, all these, you know, these freaks and hippies, they're really just this wonderful kids and that are having a good time and they're not hurting anybody. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love the guy who asked the one kid why he calls himself a freak. You know, why do you call yes. yourself that? Yeah, there's just so much, so much human interest going on with all of these all of these little bits. Yeah. All the, I, and I love I just love that we see the town. We see how the town reacted. We see, you know, there's a, cr- a couple of cranky folks. There's there's the guy who with Craig's favorite line. It's a shitty mess. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but I, I, yeah. I, I think my favorite part about that is he's talking to the cameraman about how, what a shitty mess it is. His wife is working on the car. <laughs> yes. And and then like in the middle, she's like, why am I supposed to be down? Like, I get the impression <laughs> that like he was fixing the car and just like. 
threw that task to his wife that had no idea what she was supposed to do with the car (laughs) while he went and gave an interview to this camera person. And then just like, as if on cue, these, these hippies come up and ask if they can use a telephone. No, it's a disaster. (laughs) She starts flipping out. It's so great. Like that's, that's one of my favorite pieces of film in Woodstock. (laughs) It's just funny how it's considered like such a counterculture thing, but in actuality, it was, was not so much countercultures. It was really just bridging the cultures together, you know? Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sure, it was anti-war and anti-establishment, but I didn't feel like a lot of that really came across in the movie. You know, Michael Lane goes into, you know, who he was and who his community was as a person who wanted to have this festival. And he, you know, he had arranged um, a music festival in Miami, maybe, that had been very successful. And it was based on that experience that sort of spawned what became Woodstock. He'd ran like a head shop in New York, and then he moved down to um, Florida and was running one there. And he had so many problems with the law coming to his head shop all the time and he wasn't selling drugs he was selling posters and records and you know all that stuff and it it was really eye-opening to me reading that section of the book as he's kind of establishing himself as as a figure of sort of the music community that people who really loved this kind of music you know young music more psychedelic music rock music in this era um, the young people who really love this stuff were really seen by a certain pretty large group um, in the older generation as out for trouble when they were literally just trying to listen to music. And that was really what tanked them in the end in Wallkill. And while they had to move at the last minute, the city actually passed an ordinance that they were going to need a whole lot more insurance. And, you know, they just sort of legislated them out of the town, um, legislated the festival out of the town. So it it's just, it was really interesting to me to understand a little bit more because, you know, being a Generation X and my parents were certainly not hippies. So being pretty um, separated from this world, but it's so such a huge part of our culture to understand a little bit more of at least the workings behind, you know, this particular group of people and what it meant to them to um, cling to and try to create a new kind of, you know, culture. And we call it counterculture. And now so many aspects of this are so mainstream. People being super, super into current music is really no one bats an eye if you are into the latest music where you know the generation before the Woodstock festival goers their music was so different you know and we've all heard about that clash between those parents and those kids but I mean it's a it was a huge shift in the culture first of all to have teenagers at all teenagers weren't a thing before (laughs) before World War II they really weren't but after World War II we have the first time that kids have money and they have actual leisure time they aren't necessarily getting into jobs as soon as they turn you know 17 or 18 it's just such a, a world a world of difference from what we're used to and yet there's so many threads in all the things that color our culture now that that we can really point to you know Woodstock is a is a real watershed moment. That's really true. I hadn't thought about it that way. By the time kids are like 13 now, we almost encourage their autonomy. Yeah. Whereas before absolutely. it was until you were 18, you were completely under the reign of your parents. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's that old, you know, under my roof, my rules kind of thing. Yeah. And that doesn't allow for go ahead and play your records loudly. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. And that's that seems like such a minor thing, but it was a huge point of contention in so many of these family units. I don't think this is in 
the Woodstock film, but maybe some of the other footage that we've watched lately where kids are talking about, I found my people. I thought I was the only one in my little town. I was the only one in Syracuse or, or wherever, you know, but I came here and everyone feels the same way I do. They just want to listen to music and relax and take a lot of drugs, you know? <laughs> I love the moments in the movie where it shows like the role of kids calling their parents on the phone and just saying, you're like, oh no, we're fine. We're fine. Things are going great. You don't yeah. have to worry about us. And yeah. it's, it's just kind of it's kind of cool to see. It is. Yeah. Yeah. It's that I think it's easy for younger people who weren't there and maybe people of that generation who weren't there to say all oh, those hippies were just doing it in the mud for three days. They were crazy. <laughs> they were wild. But to see the very like the very teenagery behavior of people, the responsible behavior, the crazy behavior. But, you know, it's it's the gamut of human behavior. But all in this very safe environment. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just wanted to, to to say one quick thing about the setup in the beginning of the film. Yeah. One of my favorite things is I mean, they spend a, a good amount of time with the shots of of setup and things like that. We go through mm. I think three complete studio versions of songs before we're actually into acts starting. But one of my favorite things is when Crosby, Stills, and Nash uh, wooden ship starts up and it, it it just immediately goes to nighttime, I assume the night before, mm. uh, and like final setup. Uh, it's just a really, really cool transition and one of my favorite things in the film. I got to throw out again to the editing. I think it's incredibly good. And you have some pretty famous people in the editing bay. Martin Scorsese himself, his longtime editor, wow. um, Thelma Schum Schumacher, Schoonmaker. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I mean, the way that they took all of this, what just must have been hours and hours of footage and pulled together a really artistic piece that, like we said at the top of all of this, really is immersive and brings you in almost overwhelmingly. But choosing the split screen, sometimes three, the way that they move from section to section, it's pretty incredible. And I, I was reading before we started that it was uh, nominated for an Academy Award for Best Editing, which editing, which almost never happens for documentaries. So it's really worth noting. And editing is such a weird, I mean, sometimes editing gets uh, awards just because you notice it. And that isn't always a good thing. <laughs> but right. in this case, I think it's, I think it makes the film. I think Michael Wadley, the director, I mean, he had an eye for what to capture, but putting it all together in one package was what made it. Yes. And that's no easy task. Now, the mm -hmm. split screen was kind of a happy accident in a way because there was so much footage yeah, that right. they wanted to include that the only way they could was by doing the split screen and having two things going on at the same time. And they weren't always the same mm. things, like the similar activities happening at the same time. There, there, there's a lot of moments where there's something happening on one day on one side of the screen and something completely different happening at night on a different day on the, on the other side of the screen. And it was right. just kind of their way of almost cramming everything into one but it it works so well it was so groundbreaking nothing like that had ever been done before and i mean probably not its intention at the time but begs repeated viewings because you'll always find something new oh yeah mm -hmm. like you know uh when you watch it the first time it's like okay well i totally missed what was you know going on 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 the other side of the screen so it, it's fun to go through and just see things that you'd never noticed yeah i didn't know where to even <laughs> settle my eyes when i was watching it Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. One thing I, I do want to mention real quick regarding performances, we need to keep in mind that this version that we've all seen 
is not the way it was originally released and that some of these performances weren't actually in the original film at all. Right. So it's weird to kind of think of those performances as never having been there until 25 years later. And we'll probably go into it maybe more as we go, but the film and the album to a different sort of extent kind of painted this picture of Woodstock and probably made the the careers of some people, but probably absolutely broke some mm-hmm. that, you know, had they been included in the film, and there are some I can mention later, would have been highlights of the film. You know, people that went on to relative obscurity after that, yeah. which is crazy how much this film depends on such a small chunk of the artists. And I mean, and there were some bigger artists that played that, you know, a lot of people probably didn't know played Woodstock until like all the 50th anniversary stuff came around this year mm-hmm. because they you know always refused to be part of the collections or didn't like their performances apparently nobody liked their performances at Woodstock so uh, yeah a lot of that it's interesting how the film colors the festival and and sort of just presents the music in this very tunnel vision sort of way when you grasp the whole thing there's a great I think it's a three DVD set called Woodstock Diary that Megan and I recently watched she had mentioned uh, supplemental stuff and that was one of the things we watched and it it's a day by day of course it's wrong because it was done before uh, all of the documentation was correct but presents a good amount of performances that aren't in the film and uh, it's it's definitely a supplement that I think should follow this film immediately uh, for anybody mm-hmm. that's even remotely interested in this sort of thing and of course the the blu-ray of the film which contains the director's cut I think you can get for a little over $10 on Amazon, a three disc Blu-ray that includes two discs of uh, additional performances and like interview documentary segments that are more recent. And you should absolutely take all of that stuff in. Wow. For that price point, that's like a must have. It's crazy. I think it might be $12 or something like that. Wow. I, I, I did not pay a lot for it. One thing that that really that stood out to me in terms of the performances that I I never really paid attention or I never really noticed before was that the festival opens and closes with a performance by a person of color. Yeah. Which ah. to me was really interesting and I didn't know if that was I know it was not really intentional because Richie Havens was kind of thrown in there, but right. it, it's a really fascinating tip of the hat to the civil rights movement. Absolutely. There's so much blue-eyed blues going on <laughs> in the meat oh, of the yeah, festival. Yeah, yeah a little, little too much. <laughs> yeah, a little a little much. But that that's such an interesting observation, Josh, and something that, you know, one definitely notices in 2019. Yeah, yeah. very cool. And the movie opens with that person of color being Richie Havens, who starts off being thrust into the spotlight, <laughs> sort of against his will at first, after they had nobody else who was going to come on stage, and he totally kills it. Oh, he's amazing. A treasure. Yeah. And freedom was improvised. Freedom, 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 freedom. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. You know, his story for years had been that he played for hours and hours and hours and performed every song that he knew. And 
it's interesting when you listen to his whole set because there's one part that kind of bears that out. He plays with a little help from my friends and does not sing the lyrics. He kind of does like a, a humming version and tries to get the audience to sing along. But the problem with that is it's his fifth song. So if he had run out of songs after four, I mean, it, it's <laughs> you can see that he's kind of maybe just trying to like do extra stuff at that point. So I don't know if he just wasn't prepared to do more than four songs. Right. Thank goodness he he ended up doing um, you know, Handsome Johnny and Freedom and everything because uh, they're highlights in the film. But yeah. it, it's crazy this story that he kind of started doing Beatles covers. And, and these are songs that were on his albums, the Beatles songs. So he, he knew them. It wasn't like he wasn't a, a touring or performing artist. For him to get through seven or eight songs shouldn't have been that difficult. But it's it's interesting that with a little help from my friends is completely sounds like something made up on the spot. And it comes as song number five. So I wonder if it was just the kind of thing where he was ready to leave the stage and they were like, oh, no, you, you keep going. <laughs> yeah. I think it was more maybe being caught off guard. He hits a home run at Woodstock. His, his opening set, absolutely amazing. And one of the highlights of the film, he's fascinating mm-hmm. to watch. He really set the bar high for the rest of the festival, for sure. Right. Right after that, in the in the festival was Sweetwater. In the movie, we get Can't Heat. I know Sweetwater was one of those bands that, that really languished after the performance, which is sad because they I their set is pretty good. Yeah. Nancy Nevins was in a car accident shortly afterwards and couldn't sing for a number of years. Wow. Uh, so it's a bit of a tra- Do you guys remember um, Amy Jo Johnson playing her in the? Uh, it's like a VH1 was, movie, right? Yeah, I can't. Was it? I can't remember if it was just called Sweetwater or what. But that's that's how I found out about Sweetwater. I'd love to see it again now, uh, knowing what I know about Woodstock. But Sweetwater set is interesting because the flute player is so completely stoned out of his mind, <laughs> and and the flute is like an out of control car running through the crowd. It's 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 amazing to hear but i i like it i have no problem with the Sweetwater set it's a shame that they they weren't in the film there is some film that exists of them and you can find outtakes on youtube and stuff like that uh for the curious but i liked i I, it makes me want to check out more of their music i i didn't think they played a bad set i like the songs well in the in the movie richie havens is followed by can heat which played on saturday yeah and most of the first day performers are relatively unknown like you have Ravi Shankar who's obviously legendary you have Joan Baez who you know who was also legendary can we talk a minute about Melanie who played on the opening night who sure. who is I I think maybe the most underappreciated of the 70s early 70s singer songwriter movement I think that her song candles in the rain lay down candles in the rain oh. is maybe the best thing to to come as a result of Woodstock <laughs> that yeah. song is just a, just such a masterpiece well aside yeah. from this podcast well, yes, yeah, so that goes, I didn't, you know, that goes without saying. Actually met Melanie once when I was in 
college. What? I know because she had a musical about her life that she wrote that was opening in a small theater not far from my college, and they were looking for people to come and do like backstage work and stuff like that. So I kind of volunteered, and she was there. I saw her another time, also in Rochester, New York, and um, in a small restaurant perform and that's pretty much what she has resorted to since then but i think she's just an absolute treasure and, and really underappreciated i'd like to check out more of her music i don't know a, a whole bunch of it but her woodstock set is great and one of my favorite things in the set because she wasn't supposed to perform she mm-hmm. was kind of a, i guess a local musician who just happened to be there and they they kind of threw her on stage and it was another one of those things where after like four songs you can actually hear the conversation on mike she's getting ready to leave and john morris is like no keep going like just and she's like what like kind of seems incredulous at it and it's like yeah. one of those things that like there's a lot of on stage conversation that you can hear all throughout the box set uh, some of which is fascinating you hear a band that refuses to go on the first day <laughs> and probably ended up uh, t- it was a really bad move for them because they did not want to f- they should not have followed who they followed or you know been between who they ended up being between so uh, it's really interesting to hear those kind of things. But yeah, I love the Melanie set. Tuning my guitar is, I think that's one of the video outtakes and it's amazing. And she wails on these songs. Oh, yeah. It's it's awesome, awesome. It, I, would rec- I would recommend her live album as a good starting point. Um, Ooh, okay. Yeah, it's a double album and it's really fantastic. The story I heard about Melanie Safka um, is that she kind of begged her way into the festival. Because she was so is that what it was? That's that's what I heard. I don't know which what how much truth there is in that, but basically, like she called the promoters and and her mom also too was on the line being like, "Oh, you gotta let her perform. <laughs> she has all these songs. She's really really great. She's a local." She twisted their arms a little bit, and so you know they needed more performers. They were running low that night, so they're like, "Okay, sure, fine, come on." <laughs> that's great. Yeah, yeah. because uh, Incredible String Band refused to play, so you hear there's actually like you you hear it on on the set like they're they're rearranging as they go, and like you, you'll hear off mic like, "Okay, this is they're next, and then they're next," and. You know, it's it's so crazy just to, to get that close to, like, the stage conversation. Melanie, great. Shame she wasn't in the film. That was yeah. a, that would have been so cool to see. And to see all the, the candles in the rain, like they say. Yeah, um, and they talk about that. Um, that's another thing you hear where John Morris asks the crowd to, to light up, but means, you know, just light a match. And I'd never heard, like, audio of that before. And he says that Tiny Tim had done it somewhere and that's what inspired him to like ask the crowd to do that really and i think it was in philadelphia i think he says something like uh i don't know if this can only happen for tiny tim in philadelphia or something like that <laughs> wow. but yeah that you you hear that as as part of the box um i guess now is probably the time to throw in also a shame burt summer kind of along the lines of melanie um although his career didn't have the highs that hers did uh, he was, I think, the third performer on Friday night, and his set is mind-blowing. One of the biggest takeaways from Woodstock, and even like the promotional stuff for all the Rhino things that are happening now, the producer Andy Zachs always mentions Burt Summer as as one of the highlights of Friday, and one of the highlights of the festival for me. His entire set is amazing. He plays Simon and Garfunkel's America and apparently got the first standing ovation of Woodstock. Along those lines, following him was Tim Tim Harden, who also wasn't in the movie. A lot of talk about how he was so inebriated during his set, but his it's interesting that his spot in the movie 
is him like wandering around backstage just rambling drunkenly and that like none of his <laughs> that's what they chose to include instead of wow. his performance which isn't bad his performance is is actually really good it's a laid back performance and really good and i think that a lot of these myths that kind of come out of the woodstock story over the years are just not true you know or when you actually hear these things for yourself it's like these these myths kind of just took on a life of their own and it's it's far from what actually happened Although he is definitely intoxicated and definitely stumbling around on the film. <laughs> it impressed And I think of this every time I watch it, how well so many of these acts do when they are just off their face high yes. or drunk or something. Yes. Like, I can barely like operate my phone if I've had like a little <laughs> too much gin or something. And I'm like, what is this computer in my hand? And I can't imagine like standing in front of thousands and hundreds of thousands of people and playing a musical instrument and making it all work right. so well. You know? To play the devil's uh, advocate there, though, if I were to stand in front of maybe, you know, a million people or whatever, that might be the only way I'd get through it. <laughs> uh, maybe Fair. so, but did, did, did either of you have to sit through the Grateful Dead set? No, I've heard no. things. <laughs> okay, well, aside from the Grateful Dead, then, <laughs> so yes, the exception, your, huh? yes, your theory holds water. <laughs> you haven't lived until you've had to hear a, a, a 10-minute uh, equipment on stage breaks down. So let's listen to all of the Grateful Dead and their manager or road guy or whatever try to be funny for 400,000 people oh, while they're oh, trying to get the equipment working again. It is fucking brutal. <laughs> More so than the 40-minute song they choose to play after it. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, my gosh. You know, until I really started getting into Woodstock and learning about it, I thought Wavy Gravy was a member of the Grateful Dead. I was very confused <laughs> on that point. You know. But oh, we have to throw out to Wavy, to Hugh, uh, uh, for being, I think, part of the reason for everything we talked about earlier, about how well things came together and how well everyone behaved, because he had such a... Uh, upside down, strange and wonderfully whimsical way of being quote security, uh, Hugh in the hog farm, you know, and, and ways of taking care of people at the, at the festival. So, you know, big tip of the hat to, to wavy gravy. Yeah. I mean, anyone can say what they want to about drug use or a bunch of people cavorting around on this farm getting high. But the fact that this guy, uh, you know, set up this thing where, you know, they help somebody through a bad acid trip. And then when that person is better, they help the next person, which yeah. is just like, That's it's really such cool. a communal thing. And like, uh, you can frown upon it all you want, but I, I don't think that there's anybody, you know, without some sort of, I don't want to say the word vice, but you can, you can look down on a, on somebody that, that gets high, but likely probably doing something that might be as harmful. Uh, so for me, like just the communal aspect of that and the, uh, you know, we can all help each other get through this and how it must have worked at least somewhat well for the duration of the festival is just, is mind blowing to me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Even though it was a shitty mess, it somehow came through. It's a shitty mess. <laughs> <laughs> so Joan Baez closed out Friday night at like two o'clock in the morning, six months pregnant, and, and just had that voice of an angel. It just puts me in a, in a calm place hearing her voice. Megan? <laughs> uh -oh. She, um, 
the last time we watched it, I had to skip through uh, Joe Hill. For whatever reason, that song just sort of, it feels very, very long to me. But I, you, you I, also have sat through maybe twenty drunken videos of me sending it to you <laughs> for like five years. Every time I had Woodstock on, <laughs> but, but I think you're spot on. I think she's the perfect wind down, you know, yeah. for Friday night. And her stories about her husband, her husband at the time, and you know, very de- definitely and and directly connected to everything that's going on outside of Woodstock with the war and war protests and all of that. It's, it's a way that they're sharing in that experience and talking about it without getting overtly political and protesty, but it's a very, it's a warm kind of thing that she's, uh, you know, she's talking about that. She's singing songs that are you know deeply connected to what's going on and, and kind of sings everyone off to sleep. And it's, it's really pretty beautiful. And it, I think um, you guys will have to remind me if this is in the actual film or, Craig, if it was in um, the diaries thing mm-hmm. that we watched, but there's a shot of her coming off stage um, and there's a freeze frame. That's just the, one of the most beautiful things. It's, it's really lovely. I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night Alive as you me Says I but Joe you're ten years dead I never died said he I never died said he her set is one of my favorites it's she does a song called um, Sweets or Galahad which is a, an original song of hers she's pretty much known for doing covers and it's great uh, and also uh, it bums me out that Woodstock cuts out the best line they they give you know her speech about before Joe Hill about her husband uh being in prison and she makes it kind of a crack at the cops about how they they came to pick him up and they said they got lost and she's like I don't think you know how lost you are <laughs> and I was like oh god it's like maybe the best bit of dialogue at the festival and they didn't put it in the movie. Oh man. Yeah. I, I love her. I love her set. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wonderful. I'll, t- I'll even take the, the falsetto <laughs> or not the falsetto, the vibrato. The vibrato. vibrato. Yeah. I told you I wasn't good with, with voc- vocabulary. <laughs> so in the movie, then they cut to the who, which was late Saturday night into well, Sunday morning, really. Yeah. Um, sun's coming up at the end of their set. Which I think is really cool. It, right yeah, as awesome. Tommy comes to its conclusion, you know, see me, feel me, the sun starts to rise. It's I, it's a really beautiful moment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, interestingly, I, I um, Roger Daltrey was it Roger or Pete? I think maybe it was Pete who had some not so nice words to say about his Woodstock experience. Just because oh, that was, was that was Pete. Yeah. It was something like, if you want to sit there in in the field soaked with acid, then fuck the lot of you. Like it was something <laughs> like that. It was it was pretty venomous. Yeah, and just he how he had to like the... sit there, sit there all night waiting to go on. They had no clue when it was going to happen, and you know, just hour after hour winds on, and they're just sitting there. And then all of a sudden, Abby Hoffman shows up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, fucks your setup. But yeah, they didn't take the stage till five a.m. Yeah, but Saturday opened up with Quill, which is a band mm-hmm. I, I know nothing about. My co-host when we did the podcast said like Quill was one of his favorite things about Woodstock. Wow. wow. Uh, I, I enjoyed them. I didn't think they were bad, but they were one of these. I mean, this is something, and I should say, when I listened to the the big box, I I did it not at the exact time, but on the day. So I did all the Friday on Friday, Saturday on Saturday, Sunday on Sunday, and that's a because I wanted to try to be immersive. 
Um, but that is a lot of music to take in. And it's amazing how many of these bands felt the need to do drum solos that went on for like six and a half hours. Oh. Quill, I think are the first defenders of this. And it's just like, I don't know if you only have like 20 minutes to play a set, fill it with as many goddamn songs as you can. Like they only had like two. I mean, it's possible <laughs> they, they played four songs and one of them is a, a horrible one, four five. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. It's, you know, one of the kind of forgotten bands of Woodstock, you know, I don't think they ever would have had a shot in the film or anything, but mm-hmm. I mean, you know, uh, a couple of the songs in the set aren't that bad. It is interesting because they keep getting interrupted by, by things that just are not important. I mean, there are, there are important announcements that happen, but their announcements, the announcements that happen are like, there's food up at the f- hog farm. Uh, if you want some food, don't let anybody tell you there isn't food. And I can just see this, this band is on stage. Like, really? You had to like come between <laughs> songs that uh, people know what's going on here. <laughs> Country Joe McDonald is next and he's in the movie. Yeah. Very, very famous performance. Give me an F. Give me an F. Give me a U. Give me a C. Give me a K. What's that spell? What's that spell? Just earn your parental advisory tag. <laughs> I remember the first time I heard that, I, w- I think I was like seven or eight. And my cousin had the Woodstock album playing and that came on and I was just like mortified. <laughs> like, like people like, can say that at a concert. Yeah. And, the, and on the uh, on the soundtrack album, there's that Country Joe and the Fish song that um, there's like a minute of music. And then it's like, dun, 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 dun. Yeah. And I was like, I was like, they, they, what were they not afraid of getting arrested? What, know. you know, as a kid that blew my mind, I was like, what is happening at this weird <laughs> mythical hippie place <laughs> where people are dressed in blankets? Right. right. But yeah, the country Joe set, I mean, that's definitely, uh, definitely a huge part of the movie and a great one, but for the most part, the rest of his set, boy, whoa. Mm. Like, uh, at, 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 by the end of it, the crowd isn't even reacting to him. Really? And oh. he really – and I wonder if uh, if he had planned to play this at all because, of course, he was brought on stage. And you can see in the movie his guitar strap is a rope that they cut off the rigging because they <laughs> – and I, he borrowed a guitar from somebody he wasn't supposed to play alone. So I wonder if – uh, the fix in a die rag was actually part of what he had planned, or if that was just a last ditch attempt to get any sort of reaction from the crowd, because obviously country Joe and the fish was going to play it the next day. And that's the only song that overlaps <laughs> between the two. So I, I don't know that his memory, uh, uh, what he has said about it, but I wonder if it was just kind of thing where it was like, okay, uh, I'm going to give them something huge here. And he en- ended up doing so. And, I mean, it's a a very big part of the film. Mm-hmm. Complete with a sing along. That's yeah. right. Yeah, the bouncing right. bouncing dot there. Yeah, pretty fun. <laughs> There's a million and a half of you fuckers out there. Obviously, he was talking <laughs> to the uh, you know other million people that hadn't gotten there yet. Right, yeah. right, right. <laughs> Followed up by Santana. Oh, Michael yeah. Shreve. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. Youngest He's person to play of- at Woodstock. Speaking of drum solos, that's that's the only Woodstock drum solo you yeah. really need. Yeah, oh, that's totally. the one that Wowzers. that's the one that deserved to be there. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Soul Sacrifice is definitely like justifiably legendary. Yeah, absolutely. My favorite part might be when the band comes back in. It's oh. like this amazing moment. I mean, he's just been going. And usually a drum solo kind of makes me sleepy. Maybe it's right. because of marching band too many years or something in high school. But <laughs> I don't know. But but I, I it's just, you know, he's on fire and I'm just going wherever he's going to go. I'm going to go with him. And then when he brings the band back in, it's just like, oh, my God, there's a band. And Megan, that Phil coming back in is just absolutely amazing. Yeah, it, it it is. It's 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 a highlight. It's an absolute highlight of the show. and not so much listening to there are there are some performances that definitely are helped by the fact that you can watch them and not just listen yeah mm-hmm. yeah totally there's there's quite a few i think that are maybe a little snoozier yeah. but um we're not there okay well we'll i'll talk about we'll, it. I have one we'll get there yeah yeah <laughs> you have a snoozy one okay <laughs> i have a couple um, so Santana was followed- after, after mm-hmm. 38 discs. I have like, I don't know, 30 of them, <laughs> I bet you do. <laughs> but I'll, but I'll keep it to what's in the film. Yeah. Um, John Sebastian followed Santana. Talk about having to follow that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and he wasn't Club. even originally scheduled to play. I guess he was sort of, um, just kind of sent on stage while they were waiting for more people to show up. Yep. He kinda was just hanging in, hanging out as a, uh, as not only uh, you know a backstage friend of uh, many of the acts, but a, a crush of Megan's in a few years after that. <laughs> Ooh, I I do have one of those. Uh, I think you can call it a retro crush because it's a crush on, you know, the John Sebastian uh, of the Woodstock era. Um, With those and, glasses, and not, not and not Grandpa John as he exists today. Um, I yeah, don't know. He's, I, I consider him a silver fox. Do you? Okay, yeah, he's not bad. I'm, I'll give you that, but I, you know, I, I'm not into the grandpa sort of demographic. Okay, very, that's fair. Very much. <laughs> <laughs> this just took a turn. On that well, note, welcome back, indeed. The loving spoonful. Oh, yeah. yeah, I just, I'm, a, I'm a big fan. I, I think, I think he. Uh, I mean, I love the loving spoonful. Um, I think his songwriting is interesting. Um, he can get kind of corny, but, uh, yeah. but I, I do enjoy him a lot. It's a good balance of corny and hippie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For me, he's maybe the most sincere person at Woodstock because yeah. you can, you know, bash the hippie thing of his all you want, but for me, that guy is is one hundred percent exact. I don't think he's putting any of that on. His his stage banter is amongst my favorites, and some of it isn't in the film, which is sad. But uh yeah, and and he's the first three songs he played were new songs that were going to be on his first album, and uh, then of course he ends with two Love and Spoonful songs. But like the, I didn't really get what the the last song, which is in the film Younger Generation, was about. You know, the child speaking to the parent, and at the end, uh, it, it's again maybe one of those corny things but it still gives me chills and more so now that i understand it when the line the last line of the song is the child saying to the the parent 
is it because you can't live up to your dreams? And he's like, it's not true because we're doing it. And I was like, <laughs> oh, yes. I, I love you. Goodbye. Oh, my God. I, I just think that's absolutely 100% genuine. And and one of the defining things about Woodstock for me, like for me, it isn't even necessarily about like, you know, some of the bands that played like CCR and Grateful Dead. Like for me, Woodstock is that dude in a tie dye jacket <laughs> yep. on stage, you know, in sandals singing. Uh, to, and it's to... like Capri Deans that go up to his shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, so I guess I guess we should say, Megan, maybe now's the time to say it. We uh, are going to go to Bethel Woods to see John Sebastian. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know the John Sebastian part. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's why wow. we're going. Yeah. Uh, I, I was like, uh, the only Woodstock performer I'd ever seen live was The Who, and I saw them back in 96, and I was like, I want to see one of the singer-songwriters before it's too late, and I was thinking, maybe we should go see John Sebastian, I think that would be, I think that would be the ultimate one, and then saw that he was going to be at Bethel Woods, and it's a shame that... Uh, Megan and I, we really didn't think about doing the 50th anniversary, although we kind of talked about it at a point, but I think this might be a more low key and, and fun thing to do. And they have like a farm to table dinner before the show that, that, that overlooks the, the, the farm. And I just think it's going to be a very emotional and very immersive experience. That sounds so fun. Yeah. Tell John I said, hi. I will. <laughs> I, I, I hope we get close enough to him. Uh, I'm gonna. Yeah. I'm gonna. I'm gonna hold Megan back. So Saturday is kind of it filled up a lot with people who are not in the movie from here on toward, until you get to the evening hours. There's Keith Hartley band, which I don't know anything about. Um, they they refused to be filmed, or the manager refused for them to be filmed, or it was kind of like uh, you cannot turn those cameras on unless you give us X amount of money, uh, which is a shame. Because their set is actually quite good and kind of fucked mm. by not being in the movie or yeah. the album. Right, right. And uh, I believe that this set that just came out, there's – so the way this came out, it came out as a a 3-CD, a 10-CD, and a 38-CD set. And I think this is the first time that any of their performance has ever been released. And it's really, really good. I did not think I would like it at all, but really good. The Incredible String Band came after them, and I wasn't too thrilled with them. I listened to their performance. They didn't make the movie. I was okay with that. No. But you said that no. on repeated listens that they kind of grew on you a little bit? Um, yeah, I'll probably take some heat for that. But I, I their first and last song specifically I thought were pretty good. Uh, the performances are pretty rough. I get the impression that it's too – and I, I only know a little bit about uh, uh, their story. I had read a little bit of it on Wikipedia. It was two main artists – and then um, two backing singers that um, played various instruments on stage with them. Uh, one of them has been missing, I believe, since 1986. Oh. Uh, Megan, there's got to be an Unsolved Mysteries about that. <laughs> um, uh, it's another goes, but, one of my fandoms. Yeah, I, I believe. Well, I have not seen that show since I was a kid, but it's it's great. It's, it's streaming um, on Amazon if you want to have is a it? Simple time. Yeah. Oh, all, all seasons. It's crazy. Anyway. Yeah, every every time Megan would come over at some point, uh, you know, I would be working on my monkey's book or something, and she'd be over there like watching Unsolved Mysteries or have it on (laughs) while she was, you know, doing something else. But yeah, uh, Robert Stack. (laughs) That's right. Right. That's right. I would like to get more into the the studio albums of Incredible String Band, but uh, yeah, their Woodstock performance sadly not great. Yeah. But I'm not going to dismiss them as bad quite yet. 
They were followed by Canned Heat, who did make the director's cut of the movie. Yeah. And <laughs> I didn't know who they were for most of their set. Yeah. I mean, the only Canned Heat songs that people know are the two that are sung by the guitar player with it with his oh, great distinctive falsetto. <laughs> <laughs> but this is like some hardcore bluesy stuff. Yeah. I, I don't think that they play any song in their set that isn't a one four five, or in the case of Woodstock Boogie, just a one. But uh <laughs> But goddamn, they know how to play, and they are fabulously entertaining to watch. So they I'll really give it to are. them. They, they, yeah, the, the lead singer is just a big teddy bear. He's just yeah. a with the biggest talent. beard. Yes, yes. I don't smoke, but it, it made me want to jump on stage and grab a cigarette from his. Pocket. I was just gonna say that was one of my favorite <laughs> on stage moments is that tiny little exchange he has with that guy who, who takes the cigarettes out, and then you see him look at him, and then he puts his hand on like, okay, yeah, you you, you have to give them back now. Yeah, and then, and then the, the perfectly timed line while their, their arms are around each other. As long as I got myself a friend, right. oh, it's so perfect. It's it's so heartwarming. Yeah, but I mean, you got kind of, love in your heart. That's right. That's right. But I mean, come on, you got to be all sorts of fucking high to get up on stage and take something out of that dude's pocket. Right. Holy shit! Right. Oh my god. As much as I didn't really, the songs didn't really click with me. I really did enjoy the performance. Yeah, 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 agreed. Same here. I mean, if you're going to sit through 30 minutes of Woodstock Boogie on one of these Rhino box sets, they have to hold your interest, and they do. I don't know if you know this, Josh. The uh, bass player jumping in around like a lunatic, do yes. you know You know what records he might play on? It's a band that all three of us like. The Monkees. Yeah, first two studio albums. Really? Okay. Yep. Yep, that can wow. you imagine that that crazy, crazy dude bouncing around that studio oh to like God. tomorrow's gonna be another day? <laughs> I like wow. thinking about him all cleaned up in, in 1965 before Wait he let him, watch Monterey Pop. Before he grew his hair yeah. out and <laughs> yeah. <laughs> also too soon. He just left us uh last was it last That's week? That's right. Last week or the so, week before, yeah. It was yeah. relatively wow. recently. Now the Shame. lead singer, he had a he died, I think, in the mid eighties, early eighties. And he, oh, had a, yeah. he had a really gnarly death. He was. He really did. Yeah, it was something. He, he was given some kind of drug. He thought it was. Didn't he say, say he thought it was cocaine or something? That ended up being heroin. And he yeah. like snorted it all into his nose, and he immediately Ugh. like turned purple and collapsed, yeah. and they couldn't Bet- revive him. Between sets, Awful. and apparently, can he like went on while he was on backstage like dying oh. because oh, they're God. like. Uh, you know, yeah, this dude is taking a lot of drugs, and this isn't anything we haven't seen before. And then apparently they, like, shove him in the roadie's car, brought him to the drummer's house where he ended up dying. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. apparently there's another – I read the Wikipedia page, and then there was another article that I read about it. And the drummer, I believe, had said in an interview that, like, like advised him not to do it. And he was like, this shit isn't even going to get me high anyway. And just like <laughs> – just took the whole fucking thing, and that was oh. the end of them. Yep. Wow. Janice was the next that evening who was in the movie, and um, I like her performance in Monterey Pop a lot more than I like her performance in Woodstock. Yeah, um, I mean, I'm a I'm a big Janice fan. I will watch Janice. Uh, I, yeah, but but work me, Lord. Here, just it works me, Lord. It's just like yeah. so, I'm, that's terrible. But I it just kind of. <laughs> It's like when you go to a fancy restaurant and they're like, what you, I have for you is a deconstructed cheesecake. And you're just sort of like, give me the cheesecake, though. Because she's like, she takes it apart a bit too much at this yeah. point. And it, 
yeah, it just kind of, it kind of wears me down, but I, I mean, I deeply love her and I, you know, I have her albums and I, I, but this is one where I, I, and she, and she's good though. And, you know, watching Woodstock Diaries, um, I can't remember the other songs she did, but they're good at Woodstock. And I, I'm always baffled. They chose work me Lord. I mean, she's another one. She's one I was referring to earlier that I think that being able to see her, um, is a lot better than probably just listening to that. Oh yeah. visual um she's she's dynamite to watch you know no matter no matter what's kind of going on but uh but it yeah it's not my favorite and unfortunately i think it leaves a lot of people um with the impression that she's terrible at woodstock which i don't think she was um no i wouldn't say she's terrible i don't know it could have been a result of being you know three o'clock in the morning Uh and you know probably drugs yeah i have a couple a little bit of soco (laughs) yeah i'm sure she tooted up quite a bit to keep going through that night um yeah. but uh but not not my favorite performance of hers But who follows is one of the best, and it's Sly in the family wow. song. Oh my god! One of the highlights of the film and the festival. Oh yeah. yeah. There's a reason he's on the movie poster. I mean, he's yes. just the visuals, the everything about Sly and and the whole yeah. The whole family incredible. stone. The whole family stone is there, and and uh, you can't look away. all the artists going on at various times who knows where anybody might have fallen but imagine that there was daylight in that portion of the movie like the fact that it is so so dark uh is just so, it, it it's visually striking yeah that yeah. part of the film because you you get so you know not even so much with the who like it's it's more so here because it feels just you know, uh, like the middle of the night and it's, it's, it does. So it's like the weeest of hours that he's performing yes. and, it, yeah. and you can, you can tell, you can feel it. And it's like his, his vest is almost, uh, you know, lit up, you yeah, know, it's like the an way iridescent outfit. It and, yeah. And he's just whirling around and yeah, it's incredible. Awesome. And then followed by the who, which we talked about and, um, yep. they carry us More into, into, there. into dawn more friends, yes. <laughs> um, don't they perform the entirety of Tommy? Even when they toured Tommy, they weren't doing the whole album. Uh, there were a couple tracks that they would skip. Mm-hmm. But I believe that this is even a little more condensed version of that because they only play, I think, for 55 minutes. Tommy's mm. like a 70-minute album. Plus they do like, I don't know, four or five songs. They do two songs before 
Tommy starts and then like three or four songs after. So I think it's it's kind of a, a hyper condensed Tommy. I but, see. I mean, they obviously do a ton of it. But you can tell that it was that they were thrust on stage at 5 a.m. after waiting all night to perform because you, you, they sound tired and they look tired. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. they were dosed. So, right, right. You know. But it is cool seeing the sunrise in the background. Yeah. I mean, even, you know, to that point, uh, there's that spot where Joan Baez is, is backstage and they're like, okay, uh, so it's going to be uh, Burt Summer and then Tim Harden and then you're going on last. And she's like, okay. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> what can I do about it? Right. <laughs> I guess I will be going on at four or five in the morning. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I do love the point in the film that when we transition into them and of course it's chronologically wrong, but, but the, there's like, you know, a still of, is it Townsend jumping or yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. The still bam, bam with the, the guitar and it's, it's awesome. It's yeah, awesome. It's a cool it's a great transition. transition. Yeah. At eight o'clock in the morning, we're greeted by Grace Slick and Jefferson airplane. Oh yes, we are. <laughs> Good morning people. <laughs> morning maniacs. <laughs> That's right. Uh, kind yeah. of a mixed bag performance for me. Yeah, uh, people, people it's another user, saying... to be honest. Yeah, there was a, there was one song that they did that I kind that of. Movie. Yeah, the the one song that they did that, that made me want to gouge my eyes out. I think it was Uncle Sam's Blues. Oh God, that fucking it was painful. Five. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I I totally agree. And some people... of the words in that song, I'm like, what the hell are they talking about? Yeah, people <laughs> love I, I've been following like Woodstock commentary with other people that are like listening to the whole set all the way through. And like there are some like people are falling over themselves to tell you how great the Creedence Clearwater Revival set is, which whatever. But the uh, the Jefferson Airplane set, people are saying that they're like the highlight of Woodstock and. I, I some of it I, I enjoy. I hate those blues songs. Um, I feel that was just a reason for the, the guitarists to sing a song or or two, which is too too many uh, when they're <laughs> standard blues songs. Um, it's like uh, through the three days at Woodstock, there was one song performed a hundred times. You know, the rest of their set it just didn't really do much for me. I don't know if it was. I mean, look, you get fatigue when listening to this thing all the way through as well. Yeah. But I don't know. It, it just wasn't resonating with me. I made the mistake on my podcast of saying that I liked the vocalist, uh, Nancy Nevins. I liked her vocals better than Grace Slick. And Ooh, I got. Yeah, them's kind I, of fighting words. Yeah, I got admonished for that. But I, I don't know. I think Grace Slick just. Yeah, just kind of, in this set at least, feels like on 10 all the time. Mm. And just like, hmm. I feel her like, you know, trying to, to pierce through me with her voice. And I, I don't, <laughs> it, do, it I, I don't find it pleasant, really. Um, I understand she's a great singer. Um, I mean, but... I can come to the defense of like, you know, White Rabbit is amazing. And, you know, and I love somebody yeah, to yeah. love and you know, the standards. But yeah, and I haven't heard the full Woodstock set. I'm just going off of the movie. So, right. Yeah. I, I don't think that the stuff in the movie is is really my cup of tea. No. I keep thinking about that. Uh, some of that commentary you're talking about of other people listening through. You shared with me one person who had some really succinct hot takes, and one of them was that uh, 
that she deserved a better band. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and uh, that's kind of stuck with me. I think, you know, I mean, we've talked about this with so many of the other performances that there's a lot of conditions going on here, whether it's timing or drugs or whatever it is that contribute to someone maybe not you know, having their feeling their best performance. But the band just, I feel, it just feels so draggy. Watching Woodstock Diaries, um, I think that the, that um, Go Ask Out... The what White is, Rabbit. White Rabbit is in that. Is that was that right? And somebody to love, maybe. I, I think it was both of them. Yeah. Yeah, White Rabbit was great, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, somebody to love. I was like, "What's this song?" And I was like, "Oh, oh, oh." Yeah, they really. Hit. Yeah, they really yeah. took them far, and I, yeah. I appreciated huh. those too. Yeah. Yeah, they huh. were pretty cool. Overall, just kind of a disappointing set, and I I can't imagine being in the audience at eight o'clock in the morning after listening to music all night long and having that bring you into the next day. Holy at shit. That early ass <laughs> hour. <laughs> and they also played the longest set, I believe. I think really? they played for like an hour and a half or an hour 40, whereas most bands kind of hover it around the hour mark, I think. How many That's minutes of that was Uncle Sam's Blues? Too many. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Oh, yeah. They, they, Uncle Sam's Blues felt like as long as Richie Havens thought he performed. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, just a brief little tangent. If if uh, anyone is a a fan of um, Jefferson Airplane, Jefferson Starship, Starship, there is a fantastic oral history of how um, we built this city came to be. Ooh. Their their '80s uh, smash hit, bizarre smash hit. So um, <laughs> it's hilarious. And uh, Grace Slick kind of barely participated in it, but what she had to say was hilarious. So I can only imagine uh, Bernie so Taupin of Elton John fame was a lyricist on that song, which yes. still really boggles my mind. That's nuts. Yeah. Yeah. But as, as Craig said earlier, that's another podcast, but yeah. uh, seek that out. It's fun. <laughs> um, let's kind of go back a little bit to a couple of the bands that played on that second day who were not featured in the film, because mm-hmm. a couple of them are pretty legendary. We talked about gr- the Grateful Dead. Yeah. And mm-hmm. that train wreck. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a rough set. I'm not a Grateful Dead guy, which saddens me because I am a fish guy, and I really want to give Grateful Dead the benefit of the doubt. I, I never delved in their catalog that much. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is one song on their set I, I, I kind of liked called High Time, and also uh, appropriate for Woodstock. Uh, <laughs> but then they go into this 40-minute jam on two chords that when I first saw on video, I didn't mind that much, but then when I had to listen to it without any visuals – I wanted to just, I, uh, it be, I became violent and it was unbecoming. So uh, yeah, I it's one of those things where it's like a lot of people just didn't know that the Grateful Dead played Woodstock and they they said it wasn't their best gig. So I I don't know I don't know enough about them to qualify it, but it it wasn't great for me. Yeah, but Jerry mm-hmm. Garcia is in the movie at the beginning. Marijuana Exhibit A. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then the Credence set is right after. What are your thoughts on Credence? Indifferent. I don't really skip their songs. Like if I hear them on the radio, I don't necessarily change the station, but I don't go and look for Credence Clearwater Revival albums on my shelf or anything. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. Megan. Megan liked uh, John Fogarty's hair in the uh, outtakes. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. I'm like obsessed with that page boy he's sporting in the in the late 60s, early 70s. <laughs> it's just mm-hmm. so strange. <laughs> These bangs just clear down across his uh, forehead. Yeah, it's yeah, a look. It's, it's impressive. Look. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't say that their set was bad. I know he's on like a speaking engagement now where he's trying to talk about how they were bad because they had to follow the Grateful Dead that put put the audience asleep 
to which my response is just like, fuck you. Right. You know, just if you felt like you played a bad set, don't blame it on anything else right. but your bad set. Right. Go but see like, yourself again. Yeah, exactly. For me, like, it sounded fine, but the problem with me is that I don't enjoy any of that music. It's just the definition of generic to me. Mm. And uh, so I can't say they were bad. I just don't think there was anything interesting about it. And I don't need to hear Keep On Chuglin for 20 minutes or whatever it was. <laughs> Chugle your way out of my fucking CD player. <laughs> oh, sl- wow. sly-, sly is about to come on, right. you a-hole. <laughs> He's a slight <laughs> outchugled everybody at the festival. You're goddamn that's right. That's the truth. But, but again, another band that's kind of revered for playing a great Woodstock set. And perhaps it is if you're into that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's just a little little too generic for me. Yeah. Now, here, notwithstanding, are you into Credence, Megan? Not particularly. You mm. know, I know the radio stuff, but his voice has always kind of bugged me. So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's... you got to love Fortunate Son because it's in like every movie that's set in 1969 has that song in it. Right. You know, <laughs> any any shot of a helicopter dropping dudes off in the jungle and yeah, Vietnam. Yeah, the, the guitar part starts immediately playing in my yep. head. Yeah. Yep. Yep. <laughs> I think they're fine, but I, they're, like you it's not someone that i seek out yeah Yeah. so sorry if we made any enemies if anybody's still listening to this (laughs) yeah and and if we did uh please don't listen to the podcast that i'm gonna plug at the end of this yeah (laughs) forward all your complaints to movies at rockpod at gmail.com thank you (laughs) (laughs) um okay sunday afternoon starting off the last day and to me, this is another super highlight. I don't, I don't know how you guys feel about it, but I'm, I'm like obsessed with Jill Cocker's performance of "With a Little Help oh. from My Friends." Oh, so good! What would you do if I sang out of tune? Would you stand up and walk out on me? Let me hear that I sang you a song. I will try not to sing out of key. Oh, baby, have you back? Everything from all his little gesticulations and his mannerisms, just I, it's I mean, just a, a complete home run for me. I just I'm, I'm obsessed with it. His mannerisms are one thing, and they are what they are. But that one time when there's a split screen, and on the left side it's his feet, I I <laughs> yes. could watch that couple second shot on a loop for days because they are doing something I've never seen anybody do, and. <laughs> uh, uh, it's amazing. And apparently he was the only one in that band who was completely sober at the time. So the only one in the band or the only one in the festival, uh, the, the band, well, maybe the festival <laughs> as well, but definitely, definitely the band. But, uh, I don't know if, if you've seen this, uh, and if not, you really should look up, um, on YouTube, the Joe Cocker with a little help from my friends. I guess it's, it, it's a lyric interpretation. Have you ever seen this? No. They do their best to try to decipher what he's saying throughout the whole thing, and it is hilarious. <laughs> and you will never hear the song the same way again. It's the best thing the internet has given us. Okay, that's fair. Outside of this podcast. Exactly. Right. 
And the other best thing that Joe Cocker has given us with that performance is the theme to the Wonder Years. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Look, look oh. at you. Look at you selling uh, up where we belong short. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> you know, I heard that on the radio, like at the mall or something the other day, up where we belong. And I, I was contrasting it and thinking about, you know, that's really the Joe Cocker that I knew as an 80s child, right? Me too. And then to see this is so confusing and eye-opening and mesmerizing, you know, to yeah. see this performance. And and this, this I think, really made him kind of big in America, if I'm mm-hmm. correct in it, that. It must have. What a talent. My gosh. And his whole set is great. I, I knew nothing about him really outside of what you just mentioned, Megan, and of course, with a little help from my friends, but his entire set is awesome. And that band is spot goddamn on. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you. That from Grease the band, man. They, yeah. That was the band that ended up doing, um, that ended up playing the Jesus Christ Superstar album the following year. Really? I yeah. did not know that. Oh, yep. That was really? them. Mm-hmm. Well, that makes sense. Yep. Wow. Yeah, crazy. It, yeah. It, his set was so powerful, in fact, that it, it caused a violent storm minutes after he walked off the stage. <laughs> <laughs> Look behind you! The weather. <laughs> that was a wild moment in the movie. When it's really documented. Yeah, it's documented well. It is. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. One of my one of my favorite things on the on the box set, and I think you hear this on um, maybe I don't know if it's on the ten disc, but it's on the six disc that came out in two thousand nine. In the middle of the rainstorm, you hear a girl that's near the microphone go. Hey, Joe Cocker, isn't the rain beautiful? <laughs> and it's so great. It's so oh, great. How, how they could have left that off the original Woodstock soundtrack, I have no idea, but it's awesome. <laughs> and the rainstorm is really cool to hear. Like, I I would listen to hours of, like, that and hearing the the reactions from like people that were just off mic it's so cool that mm. they caught as much of that as they did and there's like 10 minutes of it on the on the box wow. that wow. is awesome and then all the all the mud thereupon the legendary mud uh-huh. splashing yes. it's it's so much fun and then after that we had, of course we have the country joe and the fish we talked about came back on yep. after after the clouds dissipated and then my personal favorite 10 years after just kidding oh i'll tell you what <laughs> Uh, how long you can oh stretch a, a generic 12-bar blues. Uh, oh, amazing. And isn't it amazing? Music. Yeah, isn't it amazing how you can sing all these standards on top of it? Because they all have the same fucking <laughs> chord pattern. God damn, that's the, the, this is the one thing. And, and look, I do not want to sell him short as a guitar player. Right. He might even be the best guitar player in the Woodstock film. But good goddamn, if if he's not playing over the most generic bullshit I've ever heard in my life... <laughs> Uh, and I know I'm going to get admonished for this because oh, no, no. people revere that set. But I'll tell you really? what, it is. Yeah, it's the one thing that I can't handle. It's a chore. Uh, it was such a chore to sit through. Yeah. I would rather hear Johnny Winter, honestly. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, if I'm going to have to listen to a white guy play the blues, I don't mean to harp on that, but it it it, it really, I'm very confused. I was the first time I watched the film and I continue to be about how many people are playing blues mm-hmm. <laughs> in 1969. Yeah. How many white acts are playing the blues? It's, I mean, I think there's definitely something that happens a lot with, you know, youth culture and exploring things that came before. And, you know, the blues is something that hadn't widely disseminated probably out of the South as much then, but it had been had turned into rock and roll, certainly. So it's at the roots of everything. Don't mean to 
turn this into a lecture for your history 101 here but but uh, it's interesting to me these so many of these acts they might have some other things but there's so much blues at woodstock it really blew my mind yeah, yeah. It's literally it's overkill yeah, yeah it is and i knew that going in and i kind of made jokes about it you kind of mentioned it briefly josh but i as i was listening to the set the first time instagram stories in the middle of or after every artist mm-hmm. and even before i put it on i was like i just have a feeling that I'm going to listen to that same 12 bar blues progression maybe 450 times. And there was only, there were less songs than that in the box. So, uh, so I knew that I was going into that and, and yes, it was wildly annoying. And this one is just like, this one's the breaking point for me because it's like, it doesn't mean to be obnoxious, but for me it is that it's like, you know, it's blue suede shoes. It's a whole lot of shaking going on. It's, it's all of these generic goddamn songs. A whole lot of eye rolling going on. Yeah, oh, you're not kidding. Whole lot of uh, <laughs> whole lot of repetitiveness going yeah. on. Uh, <laughs> to me, the so, best. Yeah. The, to me, what summed it up is when I went to see it in the theater. There was this gentleman, two or three rows behind me. He was whooping through the whole movie and yeah, between every <laughs> single song, and he was so into it. Ten years after, comes on, he's dead silent the whole time. <laughs> yeah. The only performer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I. So I, I don't know. For me. Yeah, people will fall over themselves to tell you how great that I'm going home specifically is, but Oh, I yeah. cannot wait uh, to go home after that. Yeah. I'll say. <laughs> <laughs> um let's move on. Anyway, next in the in the movie. Wait, I I just I just gotta say this. I yeah. you you wouldn't know this because you didn't hear the rest of the ten years after set, but the song they do before this had maybe the most jarring bit of Woodstock. Uh and it, so it's a blues song. Uh mm. I bet you can't believe that. Oh, sir, yes, I'm so shocked. <laughs> you know, and, it's, and I don't even know what it was about, but uh, the like, it, it's getting ready for the last wind down, and like the the last line, which is acapella, is something like, "I go home and my woman gives me a good fucking every night." What? And I was like, "What? what? Are you serious?" <laughs> oh my god, yeah, it was like so ridiculously vulgar. Oh my god, that's awful. Which I usually don't have a problem with, but I just did not expect it. You know, wow, close oh out a chair of blues. As a matter of fact, best part of their set, that little outburst. I'm sure. Well, a whole lot of fucking going on. <laughs> yeah, literally. Wow. whole lot of fucking going on. Going to play three God. chords, and there's a whole lot of fucking going on. <laughs> <laughs> How do I even follow that? Okay, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. A, a cigarette? <laughs> yeah, at the very least. <laughs> with, with Bob Hyde on stage during Can Heat? Right. That's right. <laughs> Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, or actually just Crosby, Stills, and Nash because Young didn't want to be photographed. Another Another very iconic performance and the classic moment where he says this is only our second time playing together, so we're scared shitless. And you would never know it because they're really tight. They sound fantastic. They absolutely do. Mm-hmm. So so good. So they're so so good live. Knocked it out of the park, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Sometimes it hurts so badly I must cry out loud. I'm lonely. I am yours. You are mine. You are what you are. You make it hard. A little less bottom end on the guitar, please. Again, having listened to the whole thing, uh, in my opinion, great until Neil Young steps on stage, mm. and then it's just not tight anymore. Yeah. Mm. Uh, but when they do like wooden ships and Long Time Gone, that stuff's good. But like the acoustic stuff's a little rough. Sweet Judy Blue Eyes, great. 
Guinevere, incredible. It's really, really good. They're a band that I, I never think to really ever listen to, but when, whenever I hear them, I'm just like, oh, this is great. I got to listen to more of their music. Yeah, Megan yeah, got me into them. Yeah, yeah. I yeah, love them. Deja vu. I don't know why they were letting Neil Young hang around with them, frankly, but... Uh... <laughs> yeah, he kind of brought the ship down a little bit, didn't he? A little bit, yeah. 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 So there's really only two more performances that are in the movie. First first being Shanana. And let me mm. just say, can you imagine that... Shanana must have been like some kind of something on acid. Can you imagine? <laughs> There's some kind of something not on acid, so yeah. I, just, Everyone I, I can't tell, imagine you know, being in an altered state and <laughs> seeing that. Every time I tell someone who isn't familiar with the movie or Woodstock very much, except knowing that it happened, when I say, did yeah. you know Shauna Nan was there? They're like, what are you talking about? And that's that's really the only reaction because it makes yeah. no sense. And I get angry at them every time because there's the guys who are in gold and then there's the guy in like the wife beater t-shirt and then yeah. there's the guy in the, the vest the, the, with the, the hat. Pre, the pre-Bowser? Yeah. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, the pre-Bowser. So like, what, like what's your aesthetic? What is your thing? And then how they like run on and run off, like all of it just gives me anxiety. I don't know. <laughs> it is anxiety inducing. Craig, what are your thoughts on Sean on that? I mean, it's not my kind of thing to listen to, but I appreciate it for the, the you know, what it brought to Woodstock. And you have to watch the Woodstock Diary because I, I don't I don't even know if it happened at the same time as the performance. But the reaction shot they get from one specific audience member <laughs> that they keep cutting to is is worth watching the whole thing. <laughs> and at 730 I mean, in the morning, this was happening. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, so weird. You know, and think about it. We get twenty. We get two minutes of it in the film. I mean, they played like eleven or twelve songs at least. Oh my god! So yeah, I mean, it was it was a lengthy set. But I mean, I never heard anything negative about it from anyone who who just wasn't annoyed because they were on the soundtrack album or something. Like any firsthand account that I've ever heard of, because of course they always ask about Shanana. Everybody was like, yeah, it was refreshing and it was fun. You know, and that was, you know, it wasn't like, well, who the, what the fuck is this? Right. You know, <laughs> I mean, that's kind of my hot take on it, too, is it, it, it's manic and it has an almost punk rock energy to it. But I kind of love every second of it. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think it's fun. Well, Megan would yeah, change yeah. the outfit. I, 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 I get I get that. Right in gold. Since we're talking about Unsolved Mysteries a second ago, mm. Craig is tired of hearing this, but one of the members of Sean Na, whose name eludes me right now, is now a forensic handwriting analyst. What? And he's been on not Unsolved Mysteries, but Forensic Files, which is another one you can watch streaming if you just want to feel bad about people being victimized by the people they love. But anyway, <laughs> um, yeah, he was featured on it because he does... He does handwriting analysis and he helped, you know, convict some guy. And yeah, crazy, crazy little uh, wow. career change. Wow. Coincidentally, the guy happened to be a guy from Quill. Are you are you joking? <laughs> yes, I am. Okay. That's a joke that got absolutely no response. <laughs> my my joke, joke went over as my <laughs> joke went over as well as Country Joe's first set. <laughs> so you know what? Uh... Give me an F. <laughs> I'll win you back. Oh my God! Let's round this out with with Jimmy to a very small crowd of two hundred thousand people. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> by which point, I mean, he, this is the closing of the festival. So by which point most people have had to leave to go to work or school. So it really was only like a, a small fraction of what the, you know, the, the main crowd was over the weekend. Or had to go try to get their identity back after being uh, incredibly fucked up for three days. Right? <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> Got to try to, you know, fit back into society again. Enough mm-hmm. of being a freak. You know, I love Jimmy. I really do. Mm-hmm. But I don't know what it is about this performance that leaves me kind of tired. There's just something about it that doesn't translate probably the power of being there, at least for me. Um but I do think it's masterfully handled in the film in terms of how we transition into seeing the sea of trash and seeing that the weekend is ending. It's an interesting way to, to round out the film, but, mm-hmm. um, but I don't, you know, the, the national anthem, I don't, that's not something that I seek out to listen to. It's personally. not pleasant to listen to, but I, I yeah. really do appreciate and respect how he, how he took that and made it into kind of like this tone poem against political discord that was happening in the United States. I thought it was pretty cool how he did that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. It's not, it's not pleasant to listen to, but it's, it's pretty. Um, it's a statement. It is. It is. <laughs> just kind of been uh and I'm, i might be completely wrong on this but i always got the impression that the lore was like he kind of went into this unexpected thing but like i think it's mentioned in the liner notes of the of the rhino set that you know he had he had been playing this at concerts for some time and so i kind of didn't want to know that and i probably shouldn't have yeah. brought it up here <laughs> but uh i don't want to bum anybody out right but uh, yeah, I, for me, it's 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 never been something I, I find what happens afterwards completely aimless and noodly mm-hmm. and just kind of like weighs down the end of the film for me. Now, coincidentally, I've never been a Hendrix fan, but only basically because of my own ignorance. I just never sought him out. But then what I saw on Monterey Pop just this week made me it's completely, astounding, isn't it? It's a, it's one yeah. of the most amazing musical performances I've ever seen. Yeah. Wow. So so it's it's quite a juxtaposition against this, which just kind of feels tired and. But again, uh, I think it, that's just the whole Woodstock aesthetic. I, I think nobody it is. was I on their A game. Everybody yeah. was in, in an exhausted haze of you know just trying to keep this thing together, you know. Yeah. And I think that really really comes through in everybody's performances. You know, even the best of the best are, are rough around the edges. Sure. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, it's it's definitely not music I would want to put on at any point. But I, I respect it for what it is and kind of makes me wonder if he played that when he was opening for the Monkees. That would be... <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> yeah. 
I do wonder. <laughs> um, I, I wonder also where that falls uh, against Monterey. I can't remember exactly which what dates they were that the monkeys took Jimmy on. But I wonder if Monterey was the first time they saw him perform. I, I probably Could should be. know that. I yeah. feel like the the lore was that uh, Mickey saw him at Monterey, and I mean Peter was there obviously too, and said, "Let's bring this guy on." But but the, that... the guy that right now is dry humping his amplifier that's going to go all over great. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. then I'm going to come out and do forget that girl. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, that's Jimmy. And there's a few people on Sunday that we that we didn't mention who performed that were not in the film. A couple of surprising people, like the band. Performed. Yeah, always always refused to be uh, part of the collections. I, I believe mm-hmm. the uh, on the 40th anniversary said it was the band. Surprisingly enough, ten years after, and Keith Hartley that were not included in that set. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I so think that's this probably might be... the best collection. You know what? It's a great one. <laughs> It really is a great yeah. one. If you can do without I'm going home being played for eight days, uh, it's it's and you don't want to kind of shell out the money on one of the newer sets, which you probably should. I mean, the, the 10 CD might be definitive, but mm-hmm. in a pinch, I think I got the six CD version uh, for like 20 bucks off Discogs or Amazon. And it's completely worth it. It's it's a really good condensed version of the set, which I might find myself going back to more. I'm actually compiling my own kind of best of Woodstock, hmm. but having gone through it all, which I'm, I, I think I might do like once a year, maybe around the time of Woodstock, go and listen to the whole thing through again, because it's certainly interesting. But there have been a few discs that I've listened to more than the twice I've gone through the whole thing. But uh, yeah, the band, one of those bands that just could not agree on being part of any of the previous collections. Not my kind of cup of tea, but the weight is great and it's a great performance of it. I kind of lump them in a little bit with CCR, although their songs aren't as ubiquitous. Yeah. They just feel a little generic to me, a little too Americana. Again, that could just be my my complete ignorance. I don't know that much about them, so I couldn't really defend them, <laughs> but yeah. I like the radio hits. I really like The Last Waltz. The weight was really the only song in this set that really, Had really weight to it. it. Yeah, there you oh, go. Oh, I like that. Oh, thank you. Megan, you mentioned Johnny Winter. He played right after. Mm-hmm. And more of the mm-hmm. Blue-Eyed Soul or Blue-Eyed Blues. Albino. Albino, did you know that? <laughs> Albino Blues. <laughs> yeah. There, there's, re- there's a reason I say this, because I, I thought this was incredibly jarring. In the 40th anniversary Rhino set that I just mentioned, there's an essay that goes through all of the bands in order. And then his paragraph starts albino guitarist johnny winter was next oh my god and i was like what is that really the way that you start off or even or even use that that word to describe him first is that necessary (laughs) so weird but he uh his i think it's mean town blues is really the one song in his set i i really liked and it's a blues but it's got a a neat little kind of riff that slinks around and megan i think you like this one too yeah yeah you saw this on woodstock diary he's incredible to watch because he's he's it seems effortless followed by blood sweat and tears this really surprised me that they were on the woodstock set yeah i think they're more forgotten about in terms of who played Woodstock because mm-hmm. they were a little bit off kilter not not to the extent of like Shanana, but they didn't really fit into that same mold they weren't quite as as raw as a lot of the other bands that played you know 
Yeah, and exactly. They're really smooth. Yeah. Almost like Broadway. Yeah, you know, very Chicago-like. They're set yes. with with the horns. I, they were never featured on any of the collections. I think they have one song on the 40th. Their horn section was so out of tune that they oh, never God. allowed anything out. And I believe their set was the only one to be tuned uh, recently. They put wow. the they put the horn section through something. I think it was, it's not auto tune, but it was called polyphonic tuning that was able to like intonate the horns down to perfect pitch. And it matches the band much, much better now, but apparently they would not have allowed it out. Otherwise. That's fascinating. Uh, Clayton Thomas. He sounds great. On oh, this. that guy. Yeah, oh man. What a powerhouse. Yeah, powerhouse of a vocalist, and he's he's on point as is the band uh, on this set. It's really really good. Except for that one horn. Except yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but I wouldn't have known because the one I listened to was tuned. Right. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I I expected to appreciate them somewhat, but I ended up appreciating them much more than uh, than I thought I would. And they're not really very well respected these days. Yeah, yeah they're underrated. They're a great band. I yeah. think that sometimes people lump them into that brass band situation with chicago who also you know if anyone's listening to same page cast they know that i can talk about chicago for days but you know they don't get the respect especially for that early music um that they deserve and their you know musicians are just fan friggin tastic and yeah, and, uh, yeah. who am i talking about i'm still talking about blood sweat blood tears sweat although it sounded yeah. like i was talking about chicago a little bit but <laughs> right but yeah but they're, yeah, they're, same mold, they're yeah. great mm-hmm. yeah and you know the good you know the good thing about blood sweat and tears they okay. never uh they were never produced by David Foster. That's right. <laughs> Actually, they may have been. I don't know. I'm just trying to make a bad '80s Chicago joke. Yeah, like, they never they never had a power ballad comeback period. At least exactly. so. that's true. Yeah, you're right yeah. about that. Finally, we're we're at the uh, Paul Butterfield Blues Band, which mm-hmm. I know very little about, and I'm not terribly interested, just by the sheer nature yeah, nice. of their name. Yeah, I wasn't I wasn't really into it. Love March is the track that I think is on the original Woodstock soundtrack. So that's probably the extent that most people would have had with with them uh, previously, mm-hmm. uh, but also in Monterey Pop, which surprised me. Now, there's this really fascinating laundry list of bands that were scheduled to play Woodstock or were declined or declined their invitation to perform at Woodstock. Um, yep. Like back when it was at Wallkill, there was the original poster has so many artists that were listed that ended up not participating like the moody blues who that one double kills themselves. me yeah <laughs> yeah that kills me because i would have loved to to hear them at woodstock and had like a nice 1969 set of theirs right to listen Could you to imagine, uh, like the mellotron washing over those half a million people oh my god well you know the mellotron would have had to have been uh polyphonic tuned in right? 2019 <laughs> given how temperamental those things were ray but... thomas's flute would have had to probably been polyphonically tuned <laughs> yeah exactly both him and the and the mellotron yeah. uh, moody blues would have been the holdouts like uh the keith hartley band all these years right but yeah um yeah, Moody Blues stuff from that time period, live stuff can be hit or miss because yeah. those instruments were just really temperamental. Yeah. But yeah, Iron Butterfly, uh, right? who I believe, uh, uh, was it, I think it was during, they maybe, it couldn't have been, uh, maybe got a telegram saying we need to be flown in, we need this, we need this, and John Morris telegrammed something back that basically said, fuck you. <laughs> uh, like it was a series of sentences and the, the first initial of every sentence 
uh, spelled out fuck you. <laughs> uh, in the 38-disc box, there's a replica of the original program, and Iron Butterfly is still listed in that program, I believe. Yes. So, yeah, weird. Yeah, it's crazy. And, like, Dylan declined to play. Um, yeah, because he had, was that uh, his motorcycle accident was yep. getting in the way of that. Right, right. And Jethro Tull was was supposed to play, but then they decided. But you know what though? It, it it almost is like Bob Dylan was there because so many people covered his fucking song. Right. <laughs> I shall be released. I think was performed by like three different acts right. over the course of those three days, and then just like all the band stuff and and all that. Uh, yeah, I don't know. The, the voice of a generation, I'm told. That's that's what they say. <laughs> yep. I don't have that many ill feelings towards Bob Dylan. I don't. We're getting it totally off topic here, but I don't really have much interest in listening to one of his albums. But I think as a songwriter, he was very important. But yeah, important. And I I try to bring that up on my podcast, and I was I was shut down very quickly because he, I was just saying he wasn't my cup of tea, and that one of the songs that an artist chose to play at Woodstock is fairly horrible, and it's a Dylan song. Mm. And uh, I was set straight about how Dylan is not good at all. Um, <laughs> and I and I might I might co-sign that. Uh, I, I'm I don't get it. Joni Mitchell. The Beatles declined. The Beatles declined. That's right. Yep. Can you imagine if the Beatles would have reunited for a? I mean, obviously they were still together, but hadn't played live since 1966. Can you imagine if they just like reunited at Woodstock with a, the first live performance? I guess the rooftop concert had happened by then, but yeah, if they would have like done the Get Back stuff or the Abbey Road stuff, Jesus Christ! Here's the thing: Woodstock they would have probably settled on more one four five stuff, like one after nine oh nine. Exactly. They would have been playing the shitty stuff. Right. I mean, have you ever sat through the get back sessions? No. Good God. Yeah, I yeah. did. Oh. Yeah, the Rolling Stones declined too. I'm fine with that. Yeah, I am too. It's just it's really it's kind of fascinating. And Simon but that would Garfunkel. be to everybody's detriment mm-hmm. later. Oh, but, but I mean yeah. I, can you imagine if the Rolling Stones were at Woodstock, Meredith Hunter might be alive today. Because there might That's not true. have been yeah. an Altamont. That is, yeah. that is true. Who did you just mention? Uh, Simon Garfunkel. Really? Yep. I, I, yeah. Yeah. They, they declined it because they were they were in the middle of working at Bridge of, Bridge Over Troubled Water, I think. Yeah. And yeah. They, they, were, they were booked with that, so. Uh, they would have been great. Mm-hmm. And they did um, Monterey Pop. Yep. So, are you familiar with the album at all? Did, did you guys grow up with any of the music from the album, or did you have the album in your possession at all? Not or? me. No. I, I had just had, I think I probably made a copy of the cassette uh, that my uncle had just so that I could have a cassette with the word fuck on it. <laughs> uh, it might have uh, been that sitting next to Purple Rain or 1999. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think I probably grabbed it on vinyl maybe five years ago or so when I first started getting into watching the film. So yeah, I didn't really grow up on it. Uh, just kind of like the... In fact, all the stuff I remember like is specifically around one spot on the cassette. It's like the fish shear, it's the the marijuana chant, like all that stuff kind of happens early. So that's probably as far as I ever got mm-hmm. uh, until, of course, uh, you know, getting more into it. And now I can't really get enough of it. Yeah, it's not the best listen in the world. It's pretty rough, like all the performances were. But, it, you know, it's an important piece of recorded history. I mean, it, it's a, it, the the original album is fascinating to me because it's one of those things that was created at the time, like the film. Yeah. So like it it stands as like a thing. Like this is how they chose to present it. Uh, yeah. 
with with John Sebastian opening the the <laughs> mm-hmm. vinyl, you know, and just like, you know, this whole kind of it, it, it's so nonlinear in a different way than the movie is. And the fact that they kind of chose the stage announcements that they chose to put in. I, I think it's a fascinating listen, of course, now with so much history having unfolded since and, and having so much more of it. Like uh, you can't really get in the headspace now of this is all there was of Woodstock. It's kind of weird to reverse it and try to listen to it on its own as a, as a thing uh, when you know so much more of it now. Yeah. But uh, I, I think it's interesting. It is. Yeah. Um, the, that legendary album cover with the couple in the blanket um, that couple is still together. There's been a few interviews that they've done in the past couple of years, and it's it's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely sweet. charming. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's another story that was making the rounds for the 50th. It wasn't the couple on the cover, but it was another couple that met there. They actually met at Woodstock, oh. and they they did a recreation of the picture. You know, it w- not the picture uh, like on the cover wrapped in a blanket, but they were kind of like sitting, and I think they had a blanket draped over them both. And, uh, yeah, that kind of stuff is really sweet to see. Yeah. Yeah. That is cool. Cause unlike these other hippies that just, you know, came there, uh, you know, they ball, but we're here, <laughs> you know, to, uh, to meet other people. Um, there were <laughs> people that actually, girls, you know, yeah, they, there were people that actually forged relationships and, uh, you know, went forward with them. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's nice. Yeah. It's nice to see. Yeah. It, it is really cool. Yeah. It was it's such an important piece of history. I don't know if, um, Wait, wait, wait. I have to interrupt you. Yeah. Maybe a more important piece of history, and, and I would love Megan to speak to this, is the 1989 VH1 documentary we watched last weekend. <laughs> wait, what? That's a trip. Maybe my favorite part is all of the, the festival goers. They managed to round up, and they have them walking around in the field, and they're all very, you know, it's 1989, and they look it, and they're all um, they're all my parents, basically, except not... You know, when parents weren't hippies, but they're all these very 1989 looking parents and and they're like, oh, yeah, we laid here, man. And, you know, it's really, oh, my it's really God, crazy. I have to see this. Yeah, it's it's a pretty fun piece. And everybody looks, <laughs> you I know, mean, all the artists they talk to. And they got a lot of them. They did. They did. There's a lot of them. Um, and wow. then you hit Richie, Richie Havens and, and then you hit Richie Havens and he looks like. Uh, God, you know, like, who is this? All of a sudden he looks amazing. He like, he could, he could be now. It could yeah, be now. Wow. It's really wild. He's untouched by the 1989 ness of it all is my point. Um, <laughs> but like John Sebastian looks like, Oh boy. You know, he looks like he teaches uh, biology and <laughs> you know, it's wild. You know, it's a shame that the documentaries aren't really easy to find. Like that one was given to me by a friend, but there was a great PBS documentary that probably is on their site still to stream, and that was really good. I think that's now uh, on Netflix. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. I believe it is. Experience yeah. Woodstock is that what it was called? I, it's I've, some, I've it's like so Woodstock many. Experience the Journey or something like that. Okay. Yeah. 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 We watched that and it was really good. You enjoyed mm-hmm. that, right? Yeah. Go seek that out, people listening. If you're if you want to see some you know big picture documentary stuff about all this, it's a really good one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of, lot of inside info. And strictly from uh, a musical standpoint, uh, Rhino on their YouTube has put out a series of great like four or five minute chunks. And I think there are like 12 of them that uh, go through a whole bunch of stuff about that day uh, or about Woodstock and um, specific artists per- that performed. And they are really well done. Um, mm. 
modern day interviews with with John Sebastian, Country Joe, uh, two of the Jefferson Airplane, Sweetwater. So yeah, they're really fun to watch. Really cool. We should also mention just because they happened the later Woodstocks, like Woodstock '99. <laughs> And the um, they're really interesting to talk about how they tried to recreate the experience of the original Woodstock and it totally backfired. Yeah, yeah. Like I, I I sat and watched all of Woodstock '94 on MTV and like taped it all. Oh wow! And, uh, there were more acts that I was kind of semi interested in, but Woodstock '99 I I didn't follow at all, and probably good thing I didn't. Yeah, what a disaster and just disgusting, but. Mm-hmm. It's a shame they happened. I mean, it, it really kind of sullies the whole Woodstock thing. Yeah, because uh, you can't you can't do it again. Like uh, it it was such a crazy thing that happened, and to try to do it again, it's never going to be for the right reasons. Right. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's you can't re you you can't do what's already been done. What made the original special was all the things that happened that made it special. Exactly. Right. And those things weren't necessarily planned, like it becoming a free concert and, you know, the traffic jams and all that stuff. Like you can't you can't orchestrate that. And so great that you put on a festival in 94. Why couldn't you have called it something else? <laughs> right. And then they flat out canceled Woodstock 50 this year. Probably for yeah. the best. Probably, yeah. yeah. A live events have changed so much and the way things are sponsored and and. uh backed by corporations and all that kind of thing. It's just, it's just such a different world. It, it can't happen again. Right. Um, I mean, I, I mean, I think we see that with Ultima, it couldn't happen again. You know, oh, yeah. they tried to make it happen again in a few months and they couldn't make it happen again yeah. with some of the same people with Michael Lang. It's really, it was lightning in a bottle. It was all the different elements that came together to, to, you know, really make it the sort of life changing thing that it was in culture culture changing event that it was and mm. it's just one of those things that's just not gonna we're not gonna see something like that again we'll see something else you know other things happen that are monumental and important but yeah fire festival <laughs> I, I was gonna say that same thing <laughs> that, oh, that's that's a movies that rock episode wait did you do that i did that with pat francis you did do that i was yeah. thinking it was right. a rock yeah i was thinking it yep. was a rock solid episode mm-hmm. it was an episode of yours yep. yeah yeah <laughs> He's the yeah. right person. Yeah, oh, yeah. That was oh, pretty yeah. great. <laughs> now, have you guys ever been to a music festival? You know what? I have a funny story about that. Before I moved to Chicago, um, I used to come up here, you know, once in a while because I, I lived in Indiana about two and a half hours away. I drove up with a couple of friends and we stumbled upon what I think might have been Lollapalooza. Oh, wow. <laughs> This was 90 and we we had such a good time and it started to rain and it, it was kind of a crazy moment. I'm not sure how we sort of wandered in but even then in the early 90s things weren't like they are now with you know wristbands and you know security and everything that you have to have these days and so we just megan wandered on stage and took a joint out of evan dando's (laughs) pocket i did it was fantastic (laughs) um yeah that was just a crazy a crazy uh happenstance we didn't hang around a lot of it but that was you know that's a memory i'll never forget that's amazing that's really cool (laughs) <laughs> what we an awesome story that we need to go to tower records because we didn't have one in indiana wow. yeah <laughs> um wow. how about you craig have you been to one no i i never have i i toyed around with doing one of the fish festivals megan and i had actually 
talked about trying to go to the last one and then just like, you know, a vacation time and money just it didn't work out. And it, it, probably a good thing because it ended up getting canceled anyway. <laughs> so um, if I was to do one, I might do something like that, uh, even though I, I understand that might be incredibly tedious. But um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think right now I'm at the age where it would be it would be probably worse for me to, mm-hmm. to try to live through something like that. And I yeah. mean, just by like staying awake and upright as, as much right. as a human being should <laughs> at the age of 46. But but yeah, like all those things were never really my kind of scene. Yeah, it takes a lot out of you. It really how, how, how many have you done? I've I've been to the same festival twice. It's called the Grassroots Music Festival, and it's in upstate New York. It's like me, like two and a half hours from where I live, and it's a very similar kind of uh, hippie vibe to the, like kind of a very very small Woodstock kind of thing. And it was, I mean, it was fun <laughs> in college, you know. But I I could never handle it these days. Like but. I would like to experience a, a tent based thing once, just because I I feel like that's a part of my life I haven't lived. Mm-hmm. And to do it with, you know, around music, I think would be neat. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. Just was never in the cards for me. Yeah. Now my my brother did Bonnaroo once, and when he came back home from that weekend, it looked like he was like run over by a freight train. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so he was just so completely wiped out, and I'm like, I wouldn't want to drive halfway across the country for that. Yeah. yeah. You know. It's the driving yeah. back that'll kill you. Oh yeah. <laughs> Always. Is there anything else that we that we didn't cover? about Woodstock about the movie itself we we covered a lot of territory we did it's such a it's such a great evocation of that that experience and and uh you know if, if you're interested in late 60s music and you're interested in in um you know seeing the culture shift a little bit i think it's absolutely worth watching and and you have to be careful because you do start to fall down the rabbit hole and need to get you know, there's so much more material now that you can, you know, you can find like all the things we kind of highlighted as we've gone along. So it can be a really big trip to go on. Yeah. Yeah. I oh. mean, because when I when I first started watching Woodstock, I was not a fan of any of these bands. The Who would have been the closest. But even even so, I was casual. Mm-hmm. But I don't think I was I was into anybody else in this film. And I came away like wanting to grab every Richie Havens album I could and just like, you know, the more you get into it, the more artists you might add to your your fandom list. And I've gotten a few out of this for sure. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's crazy how immersive it is. Yeah. I, one thing I did want to ask you, Craig, um, that I had written down was we talked a little bit about the original cut and the, the really awful pan and scan version. Yep. But um since the director's cut is really the version that's primarily available everywhere, I know you said you were not as big of a fan as of that one. What were like the main differences between those two that were kind of not as, as strong for you in the director's cut? I think, I think, well, there are a few things for me, like the revisionism of it is a little annoying. Mm. The most ridiculous part is they added an inter fucking mission oh, yes. in the middle. <laughs> yeah. That was not part of the original movie. And just dumb. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the beginning now has this logo, like this movie is rated R, and the thing s- sets on fire. And it now mm. ends with a list of everybody that's now deceased, which um, I guess is a nice touch. But honestly, I, that part kind of creeped me out a little bit. The 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 R rated thing. Yeah that that whole opening section. 
Yeah, yeah, it's weird. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was reading um, one of the guys that worked. I, I wish I remembered his name. Uh, that worked on that version of the film fought with Wadley on all three of those things: the beginning, the end, and the interfucking mission to just like not do it. And Wadley like held fast. Uh, having said that, the, the the songs they add to the film are good. Look, this might not be a deal breaker for many people, but like they added this. 1994 digital reverb on top of the whole sound mix, which just was mm. never there before. And uh, it's a shame. They, they put out a, I think Atlantic records, maybe I can't remember who it was, but they put out a, the first Woodstock box set quote unquote in 1994 and remixed everything with like fake audience noise and like oh, really, really awful. Yeah. Really goosed things up. And I mean, it's, it's sobering but refreshing to hear these new Woodstock sets where they just mix what's on the tapes. And that means that you're not going to hear a million and a half people singing along with Country Joe because what you hear in the film is a studio overdub. Yeah. And that stuff did not really happen. So um, the stuff that was re-recorded, they've stripped away and they, they present it now the way it was. And so obviously this podcast is about the movie I really wish that somebody out there would take these new mixes on the box set and like redo the movie soundtrack with these mixes. It would sound so much better, so much cleaner because that's what Woodstock was. It wasn't this like, I mean, it was over the top in many ways, but musically the way it's been presented has been really kind of overprocessed. So that's pretty much my main thing with, with the new uh, director. Well, new, <laughs> You know, 25 <laughs> years old now, I guess. Uh, director's cut of the film. It looks good, and you know, it's it's definitely a worthwhile watch. But there, are, you know, I, I wouldn't recommend anybody to start with the the pan and scan version. Oh, that's God. for sure. Mm-mm. No, that's but, true. You know, it, it, I it was nice for me to watch it kind of from a backwards point of view again. Like I'm so familiar with the way it's presented now. Let me see what people watched on VHS in 1987. You know, <laughs> just ridiculous. Yeah. Any final thoughts from either of you guys? It's a, it's a fantastic, interesting film. I'm so excited to be able to talk about it with you and ramble on here with you guys. One thing that I would like to say uh, in closing, I would like to uh, quote philosopher, John B. Sebastian. Mm, yes. <laughs> Cloth house is all you need if you got love. Oh, perfect closing statement. Uh, <laughs> well, we're fucking doing it. I love you guys. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks a million, you guys. This was really, really fun. Thank you. Where can we find you guys on your, um, as far as pods and sods go and social media? The pods and sods can be found on uh, iTunes under the pods and sods network. And Megan and I have a, uh, a sidecast on there, Same Page Cast, which you can also find at samepagecast.com, uh, Pods and Sods Network at podsodcast.com. And uh, we're on the Facebook, we're on the iTunes, and uh, I am uh, on Instagram. Megan, do you know my handle? I think it's 1973. You can look okay. up right now. It is. Oh, but... oh, I thought you'd be right there. Because I'm on Instagram <laughs> right now, and now I can't find you. <laughs> See, one would think that I would know this, but when you sign in once, That's yeah, right. you forget the handle. I'm Craig Smith, uh, basically. Yes. <laughs> Craig underscore Smith underscore 1973. Thank you. There you Welcome. go. Yep. Got it. <laughs> and how about you, Megan? Well, 
Yeah, I'm on the Instagram too. I don't I don't do uh, a lot of music related things. You're just going to get a ton of pictures of my dog, but she's really cute, so it's worth yes. it. You can find me at a couple bike Chinese selfies Meg. here and there. A bike selfie once in a while. Yep. <laughs> um, and I do I do still write about music and culture and stuff at my website mediamegan.com. I just wrote um, the third part of a like <laughs> 10 year three part series about um, Ten years rapping after. and cultural appropriation. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, Ooh, that's that kind sounds of interesting. interesting. It's been a, a journey because when I first uh, first stumbled upon that subject, I didn't really know what cultural appropriation was because it was like 2008 mm-hmm. and things were cool. And um, but, you know, I've, I uh, was collecting videos and of inappropriate rapping in bad commercials, things like that. And now yeah. it's become this project of me of finding, you know, where people have used rap, white people have used rap in weird ways. So anyway, you might enjoy that. That would be fun. Yeah, I'm going to check that out. For more from me, you can follow me on Twitter at Rock Movies Pod or also at Instagram at Rock Movies Pod. You can also send me an email if you'd like to contact me directly. The show email is movies at rockpod at gmail.com. Also, please don't forget to leave a show review on iTunes. It helps people find the show, it, positive or negative. It's all welcome. And a special thanks to all of you for listening today. Thank you for your time and your positive vibes. I hope you guys have a great weekend. Definitely. You too. Thank you. Too. you. See you soon, Bye. guys. Bye. <laughs> Yeah.